Episode of Third Degree Burn. I am Tim Elliott, and with me, as always, Brian Hughes. Not Brian Hughes. I'm an elf. You're an elf. Okay. I'm an elf. It's Christmas time. Okay. Merry Christmas. Bring the bells. Uh, I'm so excited. Ding ding ding. What, what'd you get me? <laughs> That's a surprise. Oh, I love surprises. Yeah. Right now, if you if you were here right now, you'd have a fever and a sore throat. But I don't want to give you that. So. <laughs> well, hold on a second. I got a box to open for you because I got a big surprise in this one. One second here. Let me open this up. Is it a shot of penicillin? <laughs> Oh, it's David and John, the interns. Hey, guys, how's it going? Hey, great. I hope it wasn't too dark and smelly in there. <laughs> Where did yeah, you get I... a seven-foot Tupperware? <laughs> uh, my, my son built it in the garage, actually. It's not Tupperware, it's Supperware. He's got a uh, one of those gigantic um, uh, 3D printers, but he's been using, like, substandard material and everything he's been getting from the landfill. Was it my... Uh... <laughs> was it smelly down there? My company has a 3D printer that size. It's 10 by 10. It's a cube. Wow. Yeah. <laughs> so what's on the docket for tonight, Tim? Well, we are going to be covering two Christmas books. Uh, two? Two. One is a little shorter, so this is like a episode and a quarter. Uh, we're going to be covering Silent Night, uh, which is from Christmas with the Superheroes number two, correct? Yes, yep. number yes. two. And we're also going to be covering X, Uncanny X-Men 143. So it's just a Christmas miracle. It, it is. Hey. It's just a Festivus miracle. A Saturnalia miracle. <laughs> can, you t- do, <laughs> can you do Kwanzaa there also? Or, and, you know, whatever. However you feel to uh, uh, appreciate the holidays, happy, right. happy that thing to you. I've got a lot of grievances, you guys. That's right. Get out the aluminum pole. <laughs> when, when, when do we do feats of strength? Is that after? Send all, all, all hate mail to gotta get burned at gmail.com. <laughs> Care of Brian Hughes. Um, I don't know. I, I think you'd have, anyway. have to do the feats of strength after you eat because everybody's all logged or all that tryptophan. You'd be sleepy and... Humped up on carbs. That too. All right, all right. So, it, you know, it's the holiday season. We got Christmas and everything else coming, end of year. And, you know, the the real great time will be afterwards when you get your income tax return for those that actually do get an income tax return. But for right now, we're just going to give you some Christmas stories. And uh, to start that off, I am going to cover Silent Night from Christmas Superheroes number two. I'm reading it from the DC Universe by John Byrne, the uh, hardback I bought off of Amazon back when we got our kickback. <laughs> and uh, I don't know about you guys, but I love this this bound volume and the, the paper it's printed on because it, it's one of those times where the nice glossy paper looks really good with it. How about you guys? Are any of any of you reading it from the actual Christmas with the superheroes? Uh, I have not. Yeah. I'm not. I um. I found the I found the pages online and I'm and looking at them from that. So it's ah, like a scanned version. So it's practically the same as reading those old newsprint versions. Oh. <clears throat> Pirating. Um, <laughs> well, they've got got it on Burn's site. So I, I don't know that you can complain about it. Anybody can complain about it if it's there. 
I think that's where I got it from. It's, it's, not, it's in it's in their book club section. It's not pirating; no. it's borrowing. Mm-hmm. Uh, I have these comics, but I could not find them in time. Thankfully, I'm a DC Universe member, which oh, this yeah, comic right. is included in the DC Universe. I didn't uh, even look there. Yeah, so you know they've got a really nifty search function there. You can go ahead and type in "Christmas with the Superheroes" number two, and boom, it pops right up. Did they recolor and re uh, refine it there, um, Dave? I don't believe it's recolored, but my my uh, my beef with digital comics is always things look too clean. <laughs> and I like that about digital comics. <laughs> well, you know, I, I had the same problem with uh, Champions reprints on, online, digital reprints of Champions. And when I finally got the the, the omnibus with the, the Champion stories, and I found that that printing of it looked gorgeous. Mm. It actually made it worth reading. You know? Yeah. The Champions is a fun series. And, yeah. Um, there, and Burn, of course, did several of those issues. So um, mm-hmm. that's a future episode for you guys. Yeah. Oh, yeah, definitely, definitely. So um, let's see. Let's go through our indicia here. Silent Night was, again, published with Christmas with the Superheroes, number two. Uh, the cover date was only 1980, uh, 1989. The on-sale date was October 24th, 1989, with a cover price of a massive whopping $2.95. Though it had 64 pages, edited by Mark Wade. The title of our story is Silent Night. It is an eight-page feature, and it uh, features, of course, Hans von Hammer, the enemy ace, the post-crisis version. Writer-pencilers John Byrne. Inker is Andy Kubert in the style of Joe Kubert. Colorist Glenn Whitmore. And uh, let's see. Uh, the enemy ace. I, I didn't. I did when I started reading this. I didn't realize it was the enemy ace. I thought it was Baron von Richthofen, the the, the red baron. I think it's probably and, loosely based on that. I, I was the same way. I didn't know it was. I thought it was a red it, baron as well. It definitely is uh, the enemy ace, Hans von Hammer. Yeah. Uh, burn burn makes uh, heavy paints to make sure that you know that. Uh, and the enemy ace, his last appearance was in Swamp Thing number 83, and there's been no further appearances of him since then. Interesting. Yeah. Uh, okay, so the story takes place uh, December 25th, 1916. And here's our synopsis. Once y'all stop, <clears throat> stop moving. <coughs> and I stop coughing. Let <clears throat> me get a drink of water here. And air Just quotes, water. <clears throat> yes. <laughs> All right. <clears throat> On Christmas Day in an allied World War I field hospital, a young wounded soldier sketches a picture of, a, of German planes. An older soldier is outraged because the enemy planes are responsible for many missing men. Having gone weeks without supplies, a hospital is running low on food. Suddenly, a plane is, o- is heard overhead. It lands, and the pilot Hans von Hammer emerges. He's delivering supplies to the other side. Thankful for the supplies, the nurse invites him in to stay for dinner. Von Hammer joins the nurse in dance. When he sees the list of missing soldiers, the enemy ace offers a salute. The young soldier pulls out a gun, but the older soldier tells him to put it away. Von Hammer begins to thank the older, so older man, but is told to leave. He obliges and departs. Now, uh, and that's a very quick uh, sum- summary. I think I picked that up from, uh, actually, I think I picked that up from uh, uh, Mike Wells' site, which is, help me, my, bl- my, my, my mind's blank Mike's here. Amazing World. Mike's, Mike's Amazing, amazing world. world. Yes, Mike's <laughs> Amazing World. Uh, yeah. Now, uh, one interesting thing I found here is the reason why, uh, now, the, the thing is, if I didn't state this earlier, the story is a silent story. There's no... Uh, words dialogue. at all yeah. in the story. No dialogue at all. You, you just have to pick up everything from the imagery. And what Byrne said is that the reason why the story is silent is because no one at DC 
was able to tell him if Hans von Hammer could speak English. I saw that. That was interesting. <laughs> and uh, let's see. This, of course, you know, was an, was one of a number of silent stories that Byrne had done over the years. You know, he had done that one. Um, Alpha Flight, uh, he did it. Yeah, the, there was another one he did for, I think, Bizarre Adventures. You know, the Marvel Black yeah, and White number magazine. Number 31. And oh, that, really? what, what was it called? Was it, it was, was it called Violence? It was the book burning yep. story. It was only a couple of pages because Byrne himself, I think, has said he's only done like four silent issues. Wait, did he do the Marvel fanfare, the Hulk? Is that a silent yeah. issue? Uh, not silent, but it's um, it was uh, all splash, splash page, pages. But it, it actually had dialogue and such. Mm-hmm. Uh, no, the other silent stories, of course, aside from Silent Night, was Many Deaths of the Batman. Great story. Uh, oh, the one in Bizarre Adventures was Violence Wears Many Faces. And then uh, from the art of John Byrne, there's that Critical Error one with that, yeah, I guess, right. astronaut that runs into the naked woman. And you know, yeah, yeah. I think we covered that, did we, Brian? Early, early. No, you we did. didn't cover that. You you gifted me the the art of John Byrne. Okay. Thank you. Uh, but we we haven't. I don't think we've covered it in this. We might have just practice. mentioned it. We didn't cover it the way we cover normally, but I think we mentioned it because. Um, uh, I know you guys have talked about it, and from when I've listened to you guys, I know you. I, I believe. I really believe you've talked about it, but uh, yeah, in the past. Yeah. Yep. Uh, anyway, but what did you guys think of this this one? I, I know not everybody is enamored of it as much as say I am. I want to hear Dave go first. Jeez, oh. bury the lead, why don't you? Uh, so I I probably read this back when you know I feel feel old just saying this right, but early early ninety when I was young, you know, getting those quarter issues out of the the bins. Um, I used to really like. Christmas stories because they're always anthology. You know, these um, books that you could pick up, you know, for a quarter or 50 cents. So you always got your money's worth because you got a whole bunch of different stories. Uh, but going back and rereading this one, um, you know, I don't... I'm, first, I'll start with the positive. So I... Burns' artwork here is great, of course, as you would expect. Uh, lots of detail, um, you know, throughout all of the panels. The facial expressions are great. Uh, my, my beef with it is I think more could have been done to get an emotional connection out of the reader. Uh, you know, so I feel like there's a missed opportunity because it's never clear. Well, first I should say, I, I think this is supposed to be like a Red Cross hospital, right? Like a neutral hospital right. so we're we, we're not sure if <clears throat> the soldier who's drawing the pictures and who draws the enemy ace and and writes underneath it you know lords of the killer skies uh if he's german or if he's an allied soldier or something else i get the feeling because if you if you look at if i'm looking at that is that a what flag is that above the red cross on the building itself in the very top left panel because <laughs> I mean, the I thing is, it. I think the every British? every everybody there is on the Allies' side. Is is the way I get that, especially since the uh, Wall of the Missing is all appears to be very uh, English or at English least uh, white Anglo-Saxon Protestant names. Uh, well, even David Gib- Dave Gibbons. Yeah, Dave Gibbons. Yeah, is on there. <laughs> so so I, I would have liked that to be a little more clearer as to to who he is. I my assumption was that you know he's either a, you know a, a British or an American soldier. Someone who speaks English because he writes below the enemy yeah. ace picture that he draws, right? The Lords of the Killer Skies, mm-hmm. which, by the way, there's a mistake in there. He writes 25, 12, 16 on the picture, but in the previous page, there's a calendar up on the wall, and it says 1915, December 25th. But he wrote 
December 25th, 1960. Well, that's not an old calendar. <laughs> Maybe. <laughs> Maybe shell shock. <laughs> um, so that's my first complaint. I would have liked to at least get some indication of who he is. And then, you know, the enemy ace, you know, is... Uh, bringing supplies to these uh you know to this hospital which there's a tiny little sign and it's this is where digital comes in handy yeah if you zoom in on it right it says days without supply and i believe that's supposed to be 14 and the can of beans the lid is covering up the one yeah so he's doing something nice by bringing supplies to these wounded soldiers um but the motivation for why he wants to kill him is not other than he's just, you know, the the opposite side uh, isn't clear. You know, the guy who grabs him and slaps him around a little bit because of drawing the pictures, he's lost a leg because he's only standing on one leg. Oh, I didn't notice that. Yeah. So I assumed maybe he was a pilot or something, and that's why he was so angry when the kid drew the picture because he, he does look like he's a kid, kid-ish, you know late teens early 20s and that's why the uh, gentleman with the the mustache you know slaps the papers out of his hand so i I just feel like there's an emotional beat here that's missing uh you know they could have expanded on the dinner scene um you know because there's quite a number of war stories where they share a meal you know with the opposite force and right through that they either become enraged more against who they're fighting or they start to see them as people pipes of peace paul McCartney. mm -hmm. yeah (laughs) and i so i just i I feel like that's missing here you know he pulls the gun out of nowhere and then he's shaking it when he's pointing it at the enemy ace and you know the older gentleman points up it's either up or out i couldn't figure out if he was saying take it outside no he's pointing towards god i i no i think he's saying the fight is up there not down here yeah Oh, like, okay. in, like in the skies. Yeah. Yeah, I got gotcha, you, yeah. got gotcha. you. Does that guy not look like Don Fry from uh, MMA? He was also the captain in uh, Godzilla Final War. Oh, that guy was my, that guy from Godzilla Final Wars reminds me of Larry Zonka. Yeah, yeah, very much. Okay, <laughs> see that? Yeah. And, of course, uh, we see that Von Hammer likes to wear riding pants. Well, well, he's, yeah, look at that coat. Look at the, the collar on that coat. <laughs> look at the diplume on his hat. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, well... I, 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 I'm going to agree with Dave a little bit because this kind of left me cold, not at the pun for it being winter, but I think it needed to be longer. I think it needs mm-hmm. to be a whole issue or because you've seen this, as you said, David, you've seen this before. I mean, there's a Snoopy, yep. there's a song about Snoopy and Red Baron that covers this exact same story. Right. Um, and I think if you don't know, uh, and I read up on, because I don't know anything about the uh, enemy ace other than Kubert uh, uh, created him. That he was, uh, he was supposed to have kind of live by code, and yep. uh, you know, so that's why we're trying to demonstrate here where he's showing respect for these guys and bringing them food because it is Christmas time. And and I wonder if the the young kid is drawing. He almost when he's showing it to the nurse, he seems to be admiring these guys because he's drawing a German plane. And she's yep. like, hey, these are pretty good. And then, of course, the, the older gentleman who's lost his leg is rightfully upset because, like, look, this is war. These are all the enemy. And maybe that's why he grabs the gun, because he thinks... Because he, you see that panel on page... Well, it's the one where it's a close-up of the kid, and you see them uh, taking the uh, older gentleman, and they've got him around the shoulders and taking him back. He's thinking, well, this is war. You know, this is something serious. So that when the ace gets there, he thinks, well this guy is the enemy, I need to pull the gun. And that's what the other guy says, no, 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 this is, you know, it's up there in the sky. That's where we fight. We don't fight that. Mm-hmm. So that's that was kind of my take on it. Mm. Uh, I'm going to be uh, 
outing myself as older than Dave because uh, I used to read, I used to love the Christmas anthologies in the 70s when we used to get them in um, those oversized treasury editions, both from Marvel and DC when they would collect them or when they were dollar comics Christmas specials. That was really, really cool. And I loved having all uh, little eight page stories um, around Christmas or whatever theme they happen to do for those. And um, uh, this story is, you know, I think it's just, uh, yeah, I didn't have a super emotional connection to it. I, th- I think that um, uh, Byrne has done a better work um, doing that, but I think it's, I think it's good. And I think it's capitalizing on um, the 1914 Christmas truce where mm-hmm. the three sides exactly. um, just got together and the, they said, um, forget it. We're not fighting each other on Christmas day. And they, exchanged all food and 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 played games and did whatever and um and then they had to go back to fighting just showing that um these poor guys on the ground and gals on the ground nowadays are just people and they're just following orders and uh, a very good movie about it is called joyeux noel it's a french film that um put out in the late 90s i think it's an excellent film that talks about uh, the, the Christmas truce and I think this is just kind of capitalizing on that and and showing that you know yeah they were imperialists or whatever but they were they were also humans and they weren't uh, you know and it's just showing the the, the and how the the spirit of Christmas overcomes all things yeah there's a little romanticism right in terms yeah. of the enemy ace right being the the gentleman warrior yeah and you know you could you know argue and and you know sometimes burns been accused right of you know the women um being you know kind of i don't know how to say it delicately but she of course you know is enamored with which right. i don't buy you know, from the fact that she's treating all these soldiers who have horrific um you know accidents or injuries i should say um, you know, that she would be smitten with him um, as part of the enemy. You see her right off the bat, right, is swooning, and one of the, the panels, you know, she's just oogling him, you know, so, and he gives her a kiss on the hand before he leaves. So I don't know. I, You know, like I said, I, I didn't get an emo- a strong emotional connection to it. I don't fault the, the drawing, you know, or the artistry of, of Byrne here, but I do think it's missing some beats to, to make a stronger connection to you know, draws in a little more. You know, I, I just remember, uh, you know, I bought this, of course, off the stands when it came out. I mean, at the, at the my LCS. And I remember just being amazed how he was able to make it his art and yet look so much like Joe Kubert art. Mm-hmm. Um, that, that, you know, all of what you're talking about there, while good valid points, just completely went over my head. Uh, <laughs> Again, I was what just came out, and you know, I, you know, again, it was, uh, I was pleased to get it, and again, you know, it, it being an eight-page story didn't bother me. I like, I love the silent fact of it, uh, and just the the symbolism around that. So all the other aspects of it didn't didn't really bother me so much. Um, I do like in the very second panel that uh, he apparently is talking to, to Bruce Banner. Um, if you look, the 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 kid drawing the, the stuff has is talking to a guy who looks looks like Bruce Banner from his Hulk days. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, you're right. Yeah, yeah. Um, but you know, I, again, I I enjoyed it for what it was. I didn't expect it to be one of those things that was you know. Oh my gosh! Is somebody moving boxes in the background? What's going on? My keyboard tried to fall off my desk. I just put it back. I was hoping to do that without wow. arousing too much, you know, attention. How, how big is your keyboard? 
Well, it's a keyboard tray. <laughs> fell, fell off the track. <laughs> what I'm sorry. Like I, oh, I wanted to ask everybody how they thought, because I had... Well, let me ask this question first. How well familiar was everybody, I'm going to say at the time they read this, were you with Joe Kubert's art? Kubert. Kubert? Kubert? Kubert. I think it's Kubert. I think that he is as close to a household name in the comic book world uh, as, as you're going to get. Not in, in you know, I, I even put him aside of Kirby and the others simply because of the school of art. Absolutely. And the fact that his ads were plastered in every oh, single right. issue of a comic book that you bought from the what late, late 60s to the 90s and later. What? Was it Tippy was one of the characters that you had to draw? I think I sent one in once. Is that his? Was oh, that his? I thought they used to have an ad I, that had Tarzan on it. it. Yeah, his had Tarzan. That one there was from TV Guide. Wasn't okay, it? that was oh. no, that was a different one. Then. Well, yeah. I wasn't. I mean, Kubert's like, uh, I'm going to put him up there with, with Kirby, that he's a name that if you're in comics, you, you know of him, even though if you've never, I don't think I've, I own anything, but I'm familiar with him only because... When a, I was never collecting as a kid, but I read uh, Haunted Tank, so that's how I remember his style from that in GI Combat. Uh, right. If so, you got any any war comics in the seven sixties or seventies, you're yeah. pro- probably pretty much assured that you're going to get some of his art in there. Yeah. Anything yeah. Sergeant Rock. Absolutely. Uh, you know, was was, was going to be that. So I was always, you know, it's like I, I, I knew of it. I had, I don't know, maybe total 50 total issues of stuff that he's worked on over the years, but not a not a great, you know, collection or nothing I went out of my way for. But well, his work was always, you know, what it was. It was it was his style and it was very recognizable. Uh, and uh, his Hawkman stuff, too. Yeah, I, I, I haven't read that. But, well, he seems to he's one of those artists that war comics seems to be what he was born to do. Yeah. You know, the way uh, Simonson seemed like he was destined to do Thor because it is that that that's such a, a, a fantastic marriage that Kubert seems like war stuff seems to be his bread and butter. And obviously, it was because he did so much of it. But uh, I mean, I thought, how did well, let me ask you this. How do you think Byrne captured the look of? Oh, I, I think he, that he nailed it while keeping his own style in there. I, I, that's that's the one thing he's incredibly consistent for both of them. I, I agree with you. I, I mean. Uh, when I first revisited this, because I, you know, it's been a long time since I looked at it, I was like, "Wow, this is a really heavy inker because it, it, there's hardly." Again, it's Andy Andy Kubert doing the ink, so maybe he he is also accenting and such. That's what I'm wondering. How, how much of he's he bringing out his father? He then that's what his goal was. Uh, and yeah, and it's and it's obvious because there are some things that look very much like like definite burn, and then there's a lot of stuff that doesn't look like. His stuff, and, and definitely it's the Qbert, or there's a couple of pages that kind of look like, or panels that look like Don Heck, which is one of my least favorite artists, but um, still a, um, a stalwart in the community, uh, the comics community. But I was just like, uh, but the art is great. And to your point, Tim and Brian, as you were saying earlier about Qbert, um, uh, certain artists sometimes their art just lends well to certain types of stories. And um, Kubert really uh, lends well to World War II or one stories or that type of those types of heroes. Gail Kane, a certain style. Gene Cologne, a certain style. Frank Robbins on Invaders, the 1940s Invaders, to me is just like the epitome of that style of artwork. It just it evokes those styles. So I love when we get those types of things. So I really like that Byrne was able to um, pay respect to Kubert in this style for this 
this era of storytelling. I think it really adds to someone like me or most people who pay attention to that kind of stuff to the ambiance or the the era that it takes place in. To me, it feels like a World War One two story or mm -hmm. a World War One story because of the art. Yeah. Okay. I was, one I was last thinking Gene Colon too, or, or Cologne. Is it Colon or Cologne? Yeah. I've, I've always heard said Colon. I heard it's Gene Colon and Ernie Colon. Yeah. Oh, okay, okay. Yeah. Now, uh, my last question, first and last panel, are they the same? I was wondering, too. I'm flashing back and forth them. And I, I mean, the snow is different, but everything else, it, it's almost like it, he took it from the same image, but he reframed it just a little bit. Because on the last page, you see more of the back tail. Yeah, yeah I, feel, I feel like this was just to say... You know, he brought the supplies. He definitely brought some excitement <laughs> to these but in injured the end, soldiers. Yeah. Well, I think it's that they go back to sitting around doing nothing, you know, and yeah. really. Hey, they got a meal out of it. That, that, that much is nice. It's a really touching story in a way that, you know, it is just it? shows uh, the spirit. All right. Well, mm -mm. Any last like, thoughts or comments on this, or shall we move on to X Men 143? Well, I got nothing on it. I mean, I mean <laughs> <laughs> nothing Tell more. Us what you really think, nothing man. more on it. <laughs> All right. All right. So, uh, it's a divided David. panel. That's right. <laughs> yeah. uh, now, do we want to go ahead and take a promo break right now and then come back and David uh, pick up with X Men 143? Sure. All right. Well, we'll be back in just a few. But in the meantime, enjoy this break from. Hello, ladies and gentlemen, this is Jason Giaconetti. You may recognize my voice from the Vault of Starling Monster Horror Tales of Terror. And if you don't, you should be listening. But today I need to ask you a few questions. Do you like big bugs and you cannot lie? Other robots just can't deny that when the Queen of Space walks in and puts a blast in your face that your gears get sprung? Are you deep in the bee we're sharing? Are you hooked and you can't stop staring? If you answered yes to any of these questions, then have I got a podcast for you. Bots, Bugs, and Babes, the B-Movie Podcast. From classics to cults and all the yummy, yummy cheese in between. Look for my new show, Bots, Bugs, and Babes, on the Two True Freaks Network and on iTunes. That's Bots, Bugs, and Babes, the B-Movie Podcast. Double J on the Triple B is your hookup. Holler if you hear me. And we're back, and John is going to tell us about one for X Men one forty three. Wait a minute! Wait a minute! Wait a minute! I thought David. Would. I'm kind of bossy and pushy. I'm just getting him out of the way. I'm going to do it, you guys. <laughs> okay. So here we. I, I goofed that up earlier. If, <laughs> if I did, I'm sorry. <laughs> okay. It's organic. You, sir. It's organic. So we are doing X Men, um, Uncanny X Men Volume One. 143, editor Louis Simonson, writer Chris Claremont, plotter, penciler John Byrne, inker Terry Austin, who also did the cover with Rich Parker, and letterer Tom Orzakowski and colorist Glennis Ween, or Wine. Uh, and uh, the story was on sale December 16th, 1980, which is the day that we're recording. So, hey, very cool. Had a March cover date. And... Uh, it has been uh, reprinted in a lot of different places, so um, let people find those. Uh, I'm looking at it from uh, a Marvel Masterworks uh, Days of Future Past softcover, which is really cool. That's what I'm looking so, at from. What? That's what I'm looking at from, too. 
the Matt, yeah. the Days of Future Past. So previously in the X-Men, the X-Men have battled the newly formed Brotherhood of Evil Mutants and saved Senator Kelly from being assassinated. To do this, they are aided by an adult Kate Rasputin who sent her consciousness back in time to the body of young Kitty Pride, who had just joined the X-Men after the tragic Dark Phoenix saga. Saga, saga. This was done in the hopes of preventing the mutant hysteria and genocide of 30 years in the future called Days of Future Past. And um, that will lead into Elsewhen, which is being done currently by John Byrne. So check that out. And our story opens with a flashback. The X-Men's first battle with the Nagari beings in X-Men 96, specifically Storm's destruction of the Obelisk, which was the nexus of the gateway between their world and ours. And the X-Men believe that the with the Obelisk gone, that the gate was sealed. But sometime later, a demon slowly crawled from the, the rubble free in our world and soon found a nice young couple on their lovely little trip to find a Christmas tree before uh, and becoming the first of many victims that the demon would feast upon their body and soul. Kind of reminds me of uh, Proteus when he used to uh, sap out the energy from yeah. uh, those beings. So meanwhile at the X-Mansion, Kitty Pride is busy learning the controls of the Blackbird. And it's time for folks to finally prepare for the holidays and Angel departs to visit with his longtime girlfriend, Candy Southern. Logan introduces Mariko Yoshida to the, the X-Men and then he sets off. And then the remaining X-Men, Professor X, Storm, and Colossus and Nightcrawler depart leaving Kitty in the mansion alone. Um, feeling a little bit lonely and bored, she tries calling her parents, but has no luck, and then receives a phone call from Scott Summers, who called to wish everyone a Merry Christmas. And we find that uh, this is where the uh, his uh, where uh, Lee Forrester's introduced in this issue, uh, as he goes to uh, get away, have some time away after the death of Jean and uh, spend some time on a uh, a fishing boat, which. Uh, is all wasn't changed sure, now. Wasn't sure where you were going with that. <laughs> yeah. So um, so um, that's it with Scott. And then um, finding uh, Kitty alone in the mansion, she decides that she's going to go and uh, do some workout in the danger room and gets a alert finding that there's an intruder in the in the house. So she goes up to the attic, finds the uh, storm's attic uh, obliterated with cold, and then gets attacked by this demon who has uh, entered the mansion. She leads him on a chase throughout the mansion, eventually ending up in the Blackbird's hangar, where she promptly figures out a way that she tricks him into coming down the, jet the, air uh, the uh, jetway and promptly ignites the engines and fries this demon butt, or so she thinks, or does she? Um, this, of course, wrecks the hangar and the Blackbird, and as she's leaving the Blackbird thinking she's relieved and all triumphant, um, she faces a claw reaching from the burned ruins. Uh, turn the page and cut to the X-Men returning to the mansion and finding Kitty all snuggled up against uh, next to a fire and uh, with her parents, uh, she's quite pleased to see. And then she gets called aside by Storm saying, um, something happened upstairs, can you explain it to me? And uh, Kitty uh, explains what happened and leaves Storm feeling quite proud. And that's a recap. Hey, very good. Very good. Very good. I've always loved this issue. And, you know, of course, back in the day, you know, after this came out, I really, you know, and I wasn't one that, that would sit there and go reading letters pages and stuff like that. So I had no clue that Byrne was leaving 
the X-Men after this issue. So I was quite shocked as well when uh, I'm happy because uh, that meant Cockroon came back, but still it was like, what? <laughs> Were you still working at the gas station, John, getting your pick of... I was at that time, yeah. Or I was on, I think I was on subscriptions at this point. Yeah, you know, I, I, I was one of those guys. Let's see, I was about 14 years old when this came out. Um, yeah, I, I, you know, it's like Kitty was one of those characters I kind of grew with. And so I actually read her voice as someone I actually knew that I had a crush on. Uh-huh. So, uh, yeah, and, and even, even after all these years, whenever I read those old books, I hear it in that voice. That's great. Uh, yeah. But, uh, yeah, Kitty was one of those, one of those characters I always liked and identified with and, uh, yeah, if she'd been, you know, of course, uh, I always liked Sigourney Weaver, who she's, you know, basically modeled after. And and this book itself, of course, is a, an homage to Alien. Yep. And if you guys have read you any think? of the notes, they were they were really surprised <laughs> that they didn't get sued for. Mm-hmm. But they never ever heard any any gripe from anywhere, Fox or anybody. Yeah, well, I, I, we just we just needed Kitty to say <laughs> at some point when she started on fire, you know, like get away from her, you bitch. <laughs> <laughs> well, that hadn't happened yet. Well, I thought it was. I read that Byrne thought he was being very subtle in his artwork, and he was afraid people weren't going to get it until the end. And then he said Claremont went and wrote it more like the movie. I thought you can take all the dialogue out of this, and there's absolutely no there's there's no subtlety to this at all. It's obviously an homage ripoff. Yeah. What are we what are we going to call it? Of Alien. So I don't want he thought he Heavily was being inspired by. Yeah. I actually have a, uh, I put in my notes a quote from him, and, and here's what he said. He said, Byrne recalled that we wanted to do an homage to the movie Alien, and I don't know whether I was demented or what in those days, but I honestly <laughs> thought when I was drawing it that people wouldn't instantly realize where we got it from. <laughs> I thought I was really clever, how I was making little twists and turns to change it. Only the ending where she used the Blackbird to blast the Nagari to death was the same. And then Chris kind of wrote the script even more like the movie. By the time I actually read it, I was like, oh well, wait till the lawsuits come. <laughs> but they never did, end quote. <laughs> I thought that was cl- that was fun. Maybe because uh, the Nagari never had a little mouth come out of his larger mouth. Maybe. Maybe so. He looks a little bit like Pumpkinhead, too. Yeah, oh my god, that movie used to terrify me. <laughs> I never ever watched first, oh. one's, first one's not bad. Yeah, they get they get pretty hokey after that. Yeah. Uh, should we talk about the cover? Yeah, this is all Terry Austin here. It is, and I didn't really realize that because it kind of has a burn style to it to me, but um, uh, finding out that it's completely Terry Austin was like, wow, that's interesting. Well, it's the flashlight gives it away from me, and I get a very uh, strong Art Adams vibe from the flashlight and some of the rest of the, the inking on the the creature itself. But that's... Mm-hmm. that. I mean, that's basically because, you know, Terry Austin did some of the more definitive inking on Art Adams, especially those X-Men annuals that uh, that, did, yeah. that bled over into the Norse, you know, into, into Thor's world, you know. So, I, you know, I mean, we can see that. Um, it, to me, it's interesting because the face of Kitty looks almost cartoony. Yep. And, and the way her costume fit, you know, threw me off. But at the same time, I never once... You know, question whether or not this was a burn cover or not. You know, I, I just thought it was Burn and Austin. You know, as it it Austin's influence on there that made it look that way. Mm-hmm. What was, what so, was well, so what, what gives it what gave it away for me was one Terry Austin's big signature down in the bottom right hand corner. <laughs> right. But also that Kitty looks like uh, what was the kid's name from Fat Albert who had the his eyes just oh. showing out <laughs> of his knit cap. 
<laughs> had the stocking cap over his face. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> that's funny. Because I I'm not a huge fan of you know wasted space, and I I this cover to me has a lot of wasted space, and I and I'm yeah. I struggle with the light source, right? So you've got her flashlight, but then they're close enough to the house that you see the Christmas tree, right? Clearly, all the lights are on, but none of that light is hitting her or the creature. Not to mention the creature is green on the cover and throughout the entire issue is purple and black. Mm-hmm. So somebody didn't send over the color sheets to <laughs> well, Terry. That, that blue background's not doing any favors either. Um, I have more problem with Merry Christmas for some reason. I don't like the old English font. It doesn't look yeah, it's out of place. Yeah, it doesn't look like it fits in with the rest. But... I always thought when it, all, all I get from the cover is that I miss the uh, faces, the burned faces in the corner. Like they've got right up here. And, and the 50 Corner cent box. cover price? Well, yeah, definitely. <laughs> <laughs> I always thought this was, before I think before I owned it, and if I've, this is probably the first time I've read this in many, many years. Just glancing at this, I always thought this was not the, one of these uh, demons, but it was a uh, uh, a brood. Yeah, I get mm. this one confused all the time, especially yeah. when my younger comic reading days, I thought it was a brood too. Um, but I. I read them sequentially, so I. I you know, didn't know of the brood until uh, what two years later. Yeah, no question for me either. Yeah, well, aren't we're you guys? Yeah, ah. well, we're, <laughs> we're reading them out of order. We're just older. That's all. No, I'm I'm older. I just didn't. I just wasn't collecting them. So yeah. you guys, you guys have got years on me for collecting. Yep. Years and years. <laughs> <laughs> no. So in, on the first page, it looks like demon spears don't kill you. No, it's kind of, it's more like probably like daggers, um, cloak and daggers, daggers. They just hurt. It's a great image though. I love, love the way all those demons look. They they so look so creepy. Yeah. And I I, I had not read uh, X Men ninety six uh, at the point when I read this because you know I, I, my first issue of X Men uh, Uncanny X Men was one thirty two. And so mm-hmm. I hadn't gotten any of the previous issues at this point. So I was just reading this sequentially on. and Because uh, at this point, you know, it was, what, 1980. So it was going to be two more years before I could drive and go and buy back it. Because I'd never even seen a, a comic book shop. At and by that time, X-Men 96 was probably around 100 bucks in uh, that era's money. Yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm. It was expensive, that's for sure. But it's a, it's a nice recap, and it does recap X Men '96, uh, at least the ending part. Yes, uh, with some really great art here. Um, he doesn't homage uh, Cockermany; he totally makes it his own. That's for sure. Well, the demon looks well, very I, different than what's on Cockrum's cover for '96. That guy looked bulkier. This looks this looks like he's practicing for his Earth Angel story he did later with the actual alien. Uh, <laughs> I haven't read that yet. That's pretty good. It's uh, Dark Horse. Yeah, that that is one element in the book here that it the the stature of the creature you know seems to change, and so I I had to go and look it up because I'm not that from I wasn't that familiar with the the uh, Nagari. So they're supposed to be between six and nine feet tall is their average height, and then they're supposed to weigh between four and nine hundred pounds. Wow. And their claws are poison. Hmm. So you know. I don't know if this one fits right in there. At least the perspective maybe changes. You know, when when it uh, kills the couple that John's so loving, you know, put in his, his recap, right? That they're so happy. Life is the best. Nothing could go wrong. We're going to go get our own tree. And, oh, my God, we're dead. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, it's holding up the, the wife and the, the guys and pale by the tail. I mean, it's, it's <laughs> brutal. 
It is pretty brutal. Well, that that whole thing where where the hand lunges out and grabs oh. him by the throat, and and the the, the balloon, uh, not the balloon, but the description box says, you know, for Douglas Moore, death is virtually instantaneous, and you can just feel the claws going right into the neck and just crushing it and ending his life right there, and, and, and just with the, you know that right. Oh, oh man. Yeah, the facial expression is great. Of course, you left off the part about the wife where it says his wife has time for a choked cry that has ended as quickly and as abruptly as her life. Dang. My question is, what are these two two idiots doing in the middle of the night trying looking for a tree (laughs) by moonlight? I mean, come on. (laughs) Well, these these are the previous neighbors of the Griswolds before Todd and Marlo moved (laughs) Margo. So, uh, you know, I mean, it's just, you know, that's how Todd and Margo got that house. They they assumed the loan after these cu- this couple mm. got killed. Well, and it doesn't necessarily mean it's in the middle of night. Remember, um, later in the story, it talks about murders from earlier in the day. And this is in the dead of winter in New York. So we're looking at probably four o'clock in the afternoon. It could be pitch black. That's true. On Christmas Day. Yeah. Now, is that supposed to be the moon? I'm, that's what I thought. I'm assuming, yeah. Yeah, because he talks about... Uh, looking at it, he's just lucky there's enough moonlight out oh, yeah. uh, to find the. Uh... Yeah, he doesn't. He doesn't need his flash. <laughs> <laughs> and we're about an. Um, based on the 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 double page spread, we're about a year year and a few months past when the X Men '96 happened. Based on that um, seasonal changes that they showed. Yeah. So that's that a, that's like, to uh, me that was kind of cool to just kind of put in a little time element there. How how much time has passed? Yeah, it's something you normally don't get with comics because they have this right. sliding time scale. Yeah. I, I gotta say though, page six, the the top line there where it's got demon really turns me off. Really, what? I like it. I, I like it. Too. I, mean, I think it's I creepy. Understand, I understand what it is, what it's supposed to evoke, but with the color and everything, it, it makes me think of somebody's intestines. Maybe it's just because my son had a colonoscopy earlier today. I, you know, yeah, that's okay. probably it. That's probably it. I'm sharing a little too much, I guess. Mm-hmm. We've all been there, oh, haven't you guys? Haven't mm-hmm. we? Mm-hmm. Well, I think yeah, it's supposed I, it, to be I, a little I, off-putting. It's supposed to be kind of yeah. gross. Yeah, maybe the pink and purple weren't the best choices for that. Um, yeah, I could see the intestine. But I, I actually like it. I like, you know, when they get creative with the... Yeah. Well, first of all, I like it when any story is titled, which, you know, a lot of times they're not. Um, and I like that it's, you know, it the word demon is wrapped around the, with the brood kind of, you know, or the, the, gar- the, gari the gari with yeah. his arms kind of wrapped around it. I think it's... Yeah. Now, I will say, though, that the control panel that Kitty's at, the computer station and all that... As far as burn tech goes, it's really good burn tech without being too technical, you know, because a lot of times he just sits there and draws all sorts of stuff, some panels and lines and switches and whatnot. It looks like a whole lot there, but I can see like three different work sets there, like three sets of keyboards and and controls there that make a lot of sense. Mm Mm-hmm. Couple couple monitors off to the side. Well, I think he's focusing more on what I'll call burn biology because of the yep. creature. That's a typical. How many times have we seen him draw something like this? Uh, whether it's a uh, someone who's who's had the life force sucked out of him, they're all shriveled, uh, or you know, did he ever draw the brood? Or was he gone by then? He was gone. That um, was Cockrum and and Paul Smith. Mm-hmm. And, and it shows here it's been a month since Days of Future Past, so there is a little. And there's another element of time as well. Makes sense. Makes sense. And then of course the next page, um, boy, the angel looks really off, off kind of there since he's so close and the perspective is is skewed. 
And Kitty looks like Janice from Friends. <laughs> I was just going to say, yeah, her, her face is lacking a little detail there. It's like, mm -hmm. And after all these years, I finally realized why Logan likes Mariko so much. The same She's height the as same him. height as him. <laughs> oh, that's funny. <laughs> yeah, should we talk about his, so Nightcrawler dangles some mistletoe over uh, Mariko's head and gives her a little peck on the cheek, and Wolverine's about to cut him in half. That, that's a pretty serious uh quite jealous isn't he that's that was quite an overreaction i think yeah but i mean that's what do you think you're doing mariko's my lady yeah and i mean yeah no he and, and this is something that burn is is touching on in in uh elsewhere right now is that you know wolverine is very wild and can pop off a, you know at one moment or the next mm -hmm. um and you know is is disobedient disrespectful and still a very rough person not the grizzled uh professorly kind of character that claremont was turning him into yeah uh, even in just a few issues later than this. Well, I think they yeah. was, they were drawing him. In the, you know, he's been, what, in the X-Men now, what, 40 issues um, yeah. more? As a hothead, you know, and that was kind of his characteristic. And it wasn't until later that he was, you know, they they, they built him up a little more and, and gave him a more uh, depth. But I, th yeah. I, th I think all the dialogue is odd that... I mean, I like Kurt kind of. That's that's very Kurt to to do the the thing with the uh, mistletoe and give her a little peck yep. in the cheek. And then, of course, you know, you gotta if you do that, Wolverine's got to do something. I mean, he could have not drawn his claws and he could have just tried right. to punch him. But exactly. But then I, it just seemed way over the top to me. Yeah. Like, it, but then to look at the conversation between Colossus and Professor X. You know, Colossus is like, "What are you doing? Kurt's our friend." Well, obviously, that's not how people who are friends talk to each other. That just seems. And then. Professor X says, you know, sheath your claws. Kurt meant no harm. Uh, this was an innocent Christmas greeting. That, I mean, it's typical comic dialogue for this this era, mm -hmm. but it just seems a little... Stilted. Exactly. It's not natural. Yeah. It's not organic. No. It's not... Do, does Colossus's shirt have unstable molecules? I mean, is that an unstable molecule, Polo? <laughs> Must be. It's stretchy. Definitely. Yeah. He went down to the, the FF building and did a little shopping. I'm sure he would have to. Uh, just to get back onto the the real quick, the the image of um, Wolverine swiping at Kurt. Um, mm -hmm. To me, that's uh, I know it's burned, but it kind of looks like a very much like a Cockrum shot as well. Um, the way that Dave Cockrum used to draw Wolverine, so it was kind of a nice to me a nice little reminder of of Dave, even though he yeah. hadn't been part of the work for a while. We always talk about Burn and Burn's fashion. Um, <laughs> all of their clothes are definitely on point in fact wolverine's got a pretty stylish suit on there yeah. and hat and he's got some kind of you know nice boots right and burn gives a little extra detail to his boot yeah he's got a bolo tie i think they used to join yep. with that yeah yeah so so once we get past the, you know wolverine trying to kill nightcrawler for giving an innocent you know kiss on the cheek uh you notice we don't see nightcrawler again until after kitty kisses colossus <laughs> it's like he's hiding yeah i wouldn't i wouldn't show my face either. he did bamf away that's for sure <laughs> well he was gonna yeah. bamf in there and kiss colossus but then kitty beat him to it yeah yeah, and Kitty tries to defuse the situation by putting the mistletoe, you know, over Colossus and gives him a, a kiss on the cheek. And, of course, you know, Colossus is embarrassed because he's the big, big, dumb kid. Um, and, you know, pretty soon over the next, you know, couple of pages, right, everybody's leaving. Yeah. I'm trying to remember, did, did we see Angel after this or was this kind of his departure from the team now? He 
Did he come back for any of the other adventures for a little while before they oh, finally shunted I, I him off? See, because like after this, um, wasn't it basically the Magneto story leading into 150? And he wasn't there for that. Yeah, we had Despair, then we had Arcade, and then we went into Doom, and then Magneto for the right. big, big 150, yeah. So was he in the Doom storyline? Because the Arcade was the, the other one's a substitute. Yeah. No, I think this might have been where they just sent him off, okay? Oh, they also had Caliban and um, Spider-Woman Spider and Dazzler, all that. Yeah. Um, but no, he was in the, the, the Doom storyline. Oh, okay. Yeah, that's about it. Was that the Doom storyline or no arcade storyline? Rogue Storm. Yeah, yeah, it was Doom. You know, it's funny because which which issue was it where you had Doom holding the glass of wine on the cover? Oh, there it is, one forty-five. Holding, he's holding yeah. Uh, yeah. Storm, isn't he? Yeah, yeah. Storm in one hand and a chalice in the other, mm -hmm. and that's just an amazing cover. It's a Cockrum cover. Mm -hmm. Classic. It was very good. Yeah. I like that story. And, and, and that's the famous one where, where Arcade strikes the match on Doom's armor. Yeah. And, and later on, Byrne basically reveals that that's an android because Byrne wouldn't have allowed Arcade to live. Yeah, Doom would have uh, fried him right there. Yeah, Doom needs no one. No one. All right. Anyway, back to our story at hand. So uh, we're Seeing the repercussions or the the follow through from uh, Dark Phoenix, of course Scott's on his own now. He left, and uh, I, I kind of like this aspect of storytelling that we still had threads going through on different levels. So this was still a nice way to have, even though we have a one issue story about this battle, there was still all this other background that was building the rest of the 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 future story. That was really I'm, good. I'm glad that you pointed that out, John, because I do think. And I think we mentioned it when we did the the uh, Dark Phoenix Saga coverage that X-Men have been through a hell of a lot. Like, just one thing after another after another. Like, I wouldn't move the house <laughs> after a certain point with the last year these guys have had. Yeah, um, okay. I, I like the... And Cyclops is only in here for a few panels, but, you know, this acknowledgement of, like, I need a break. This has been too much. You know, I need to walk away for a while. Does this um, uh, Lee Forrester become like a love interest of his? Eventually, yeah. Of, of his yeah. and then Magneto's. And, uh, you know, the, the, the Lee Forrester storyline really bugged me. It, it was the first sign to me that, you know, of, of Claremont's connecting the dots just a little too tight. Is she the one that Cyclops hooks up with and then when Jean comes back, he drops her like a hot potato? No, he, no. that was that was Madeline. The Madeline Pryor. Oh, like Jean. Yeah, Madeline Pryor. But That's see, the, the thing is with this one is, you know, Cyclops joins her crew and then the very next issue, they run into a Marvel villain, you know, despair. And Cyclops has all sorts of X-Men flashbacks and everything. I think Brennan Anderson did the artwork on that. I could be wrong. But I mean, you know, it's like, again, you know, Cyclops is trying to get away from that life. And of course, this is his first day with her. And boom, all of a sudden they're <laughs> they're in a, a comic book story. Can't, can't get away. And then, what, six issues later, they wind up running into the X-Men on Magneto's Island. Random coincidence. So, yeah. I mean, it's, you know, it, 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 so Lee Forrester must be the nexus of, of Marvel realities. <laughs> there you go. <laughs> because cause everything just revolves around her, but this is the first time we've seen it, you know? Mm -hmm. She's a watcher in disguise, getting things got back on course. There well, you go. No, 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 no. This, this is what it is. She is the next uh, person we'll follow in Marvel. You know, Phil Sheldon was in the original oh. Marvel series. She's the one that we follow now. I, I haven't read Marvel, the second Marvel series. I'm 
kind of refuse to read that. It's relaunching but, again. Uh, if it's Alex Ross and Kurt Busiek, I'd pick it up. It is Alex Ross. I have to see if he's doing the interiors. I can tell you in a second. Uh, I I do have to point out, though, that, again, with the fashions, right, you know, uh, Cyclops, man, he's got a pretty flashy suit on there and his red glasses. When I first flipped the page, you know, I I thought for sure some of his dialogue was going to be like, hey, baby, what are you doing? (laughs) (laughs) just looks like that's what I was going to say. He's just missing a gold necklace. That's right. I'm just here at the airport or at the marina. I'm sure you okay. I just I just want to sit in on their little pot of coffee talk where he's giving his resume. Well, I spent the last several years as the team lead uh, in, in a, an elite school for gifted youngsters. Mr. Summers, you're in your 20. What are you doing in a school for youngsters as a student? Mm-hmm. Like I said, I was the lead. I was the team lead. So whenever the professor wasn't there, I was the one taking names. <laughs> well, he, he would, uh, he would, and coach. he would be well, head coach. Head, yeah, head coach. And, I was and, head coach of an elite team. Uh, then I watched my girlfriend get disintegrated on the moon. Right. Do I got the job? <laughs> how far, how far do you want to go down that path? <laughs> you definitely don't want to be in a star type interview where he's got to go, you know, situation, task, action, and result. He just got to leave the result off most of his stories. Well, we uh, early on we beat a circus, um, and uh, <laughs> uh, a lot of uh, uh, dog type people and ape type people, and oh, the dinosaurs! We fought the dinosaurs and beat them. And, and uh, you know you can, and you know you can trust me because my boss could read my mind at all times. That's right. Yeah. And okay, oh, so oh, we we went up against the Washington Sentinels. <laughs> Okay, so them Marvel, too, but then everybody does. Uh, Marvel's X, which is releasing here, I believe it's next month. Yeah. It's a, uh, it's Alex Ross and Jim Kruger. I know Jim Kruger. I don't know, I don't know Jim Kruger at all, so I have to look that up and and just see, you know. But I mean, is it you know more Phil Sheldon or is it more one of his children or is it? I always felt that that you know, and it's funny because of all the talk lately about Scorsese and the Marvel uh, Cinematic Universe. Um, I always felt that that you know, like Spider-Man or the Fantastic Four was primed for a Scorsese-type movie where someone gives the history of the character in the same way done in like Goodfellas or or Casino. You know, it's narrated with all the stuff that goes on, and you see bits after bit over the years rather than just get, you know, a single villain or multiple villains in a, in a great conflict. So kind of like, like the X-Men 138 history done a la Scorsese. All right. Uh, the series, which serves as a pre- prequel to the Earth X trilogy of miniseries, follows David. Ooh, I already like the main character. Uh, <laughs> the last human being on an Earth full of monsters that would gladly make him their prey. Um, is this Marvel Mutants or uh, no, Zombies? No. This is Marvel's X, so it takes place in the same universe. Okay, color me yawning. Uh, oh, boy. I mean, it really doesn't have anything that, that I'm really interested in. I, I mean, I, it's just I, I like the way that they framed the original Marvel series. Ross and Busiek put together something that was cinematic. And, of course, all the little homages and the the, uh, the guest stars that popped up in there, like the Beatles, Billy Joel, and others that – that showed up in the fringes and everything was really interesting. And of course, when he drew, um, what's his name that played James Bond as Tony Stark, uh, Timothy Dalton, when he did that, you know, it just blew me away. And I said, why did I never think of that? Timothy Dalton as Tony Stark. Yeah, that's perfect. Uh, and so, uh, you know, it's like, I, have been wanting to see a sequel to that ever since, but it, from what I understand, nothing that's come out, even though they may have been called Marvels really lived up to the name. 
Well, we'll have to we'll have to see we'll have yeah. to see. Uh, yeah. Back, so back, back to our to, re- yeah, back to regular our programming. <laughs> yeah. So can we can we just talk about so Kitty is alone in in the mansion and the first thing she decides to do is go to the danger room. Really? But all well, her safety interlocks were on. And what does she program? She programs um, a gym, gymnasium, so she's not doing too much stuff. What if she broke her back? She'd be laying there all weekend. Well, that's true. This is the funny thing. Uh, down in that bottom right-hand panel where she's sitting there talking about, you know, she's got feels a little twinge in her thigh. There's right. nothing in her actual motion that, meant, that actually shows that. That was something that Claremont writ, wrote in later. And it was, you know, like that, like with the tree stump in the earlier issue, one of those things that drives burn nuts. Okay, is it just me? Okay, I've always said alley, not alleys, oop. Well, the yeah, Z right. silent. It's French. Well, it's so, it's written as French. It's alley, alley, oop. Ah. Alley, oop. Oui, oui, je suis Yeah, je suis it's French. Can you not tell by the outrageous accent? Well, I think it's interesting that they drop a Schwarzenegger reference in 1980. He had just done Conan, so he really wasn't that big a star, other than being known no, as. Uh, but he was well known as the bodybuilder, as right. Mr. He was Universe. as Mr. So Universe, he, yeah. As someone is into fitness, it's not a surprise that they know about it. I mean, I remember hearing about him from Pumping Iron, and I remember seeing him in The Villain. Yeah. <laughs> Which was a blast. Not from his breakout movie role in Hercules. Hercules goes bananas or goes to New York. Yeah. Goes yeah. to New York. He's also on a great episode of uh, Streets of San Francisco. Oh, he... yeah, that's right. <laughs> where he accidentally kills some girl by shaking her because she's laughing at him. <laughs> he was also a masseur on, oh, and he massages uh, Lucille Ball. Yeah. And I can't. Can't was on, wasn't that on Carol Burnett? Yeah, it could have been, and it's hilarious. <laughs> oh, that's hilarious! Yes, riveting, riveting. Uh... But then <laughs> these panels are, you know, they're they're the essence of one thing that we love, and that's when Burn and Claremont framed the mundane mm-hmm. in the superhero world, and you, know, and you get to see what's going on in her mind and all that. And look where it just it took us over like s- several different TV shows and a lot of imagery that had nothing to do with the panel. Plus, then it also um, gave us a recap of the of Jean Grey and what recently happened in the X Men. So something uh, that Claremont did every issue. Yeah. Well, remember every <laughs> issue is someone's first. That's, That's right. right. That's right, Brian. Yep. <laughs> well, I do miss this kind of dialogue that you don't see now where. It's so much of her. Well, one, it's thought bubbles. You don't get thought bubbles, yeah. uh, and it's just basically her explaining to herself what she's doing. At one point, she says, "I don't." Uh, no, no, she says, "I'm taking it." So I thought she said she was talking, but you just don't get this anymore. It's they don't write that kind of dialogue that's so heavy and exposition. I, I do like her. You know, we do get some insight into her fe- still feeling like an outsider. Yeah, you know, even though she's part of the team, um, you know, because she makes references, I think, a couple times to them. You know, like, she's not an X-Men. You know, it's them. And I think that's what that scene with her and Storm at the end is kind of to emphasize that she's finally kind of clicking. And she thought she was going to get in trouble after everything. Right. And she mm-hmm. thinks she would be. She destroyed her plane. But yeah. <laughs> and she's 13, remember. Yeah. So, yeah. Different time. Did you guys like her wearing the old X-Men costume? Or did it seem off to you as something, you know, like something from a bygone era? I don't with it. I kind of like don't, it. Yeah, I just assume they don't get rid of the old costume. So I, whenever I see something like that, I just assume it's like her practice one. Yeah. Well, I I loved it, and I love they they used it in the New Mutant series as well. 
You know, I did too, especially at the time um, which, when it first came out, when I got it. I, I mean, I understood, and of course, I sent in my designs for costumes for her. Um, oh, did I did, yeah, because uh, that was back when we when fans used to send in costume designs, and then and sometimes they would print them, and um, this was when they were going to call her Sprite. Yeah. Uh, and, and so I made one that looked like a Sprite can, so it was green, and it had the bubbles, and on top of her head I had an old-fashioned, when we used to have the tabs that actually pulled off, it had it on her head. They didn't pick that? <laughs> they didn't take it, how could they not? You should have sent that into Dial H for Hero. Well, right. (laughs) Well, her first costume is green, isn't it? When she's Ariel? Green and yellow? Yeah, when she becomes Ariel later, yeah, it it is uh, green and yellow. So maybe they they owe me. Yeah, they ripped you off, man. Because I was thinking about about that when she became Ariel and uh, she had that costume. Wasn't her first costume the one with the roller skates that were really noisy and all? Yeah, that was in X Men One Forty. Oh yeah, okay, yeah. I did have green green pants, but it had gold and red and blue and leggings and yeah, leggings and the big <laughs> the Miss Marvel mask. That was funny. <laughs> Purple. Oh my gosh. Yeah, that was that was good. So I, I like this old costume because it was kind of to me it kind of connected to the history of the X Men, which is kind of nice. And it emphasizes Thanks. that she's a, she's just starting out. She's not a full fledged right. member of the team yet. And that's uh, the original X Men had to earn their. Uh-oh. The 40th when I stop stop uh, for just a second guys. My recording stopped. Uh we lost somebody. Let's do a roll call here. Tim? I'm here. David? Hello. John? I'm here. Weird. Okay, my recording stopped. Now Tim, you're recording? Yeah, I'm still. Yeah, I've got everything so far. Okay, good. We can we can continue then. Sorry about that. Don't <laughs> edit this bit out. All right, Governor, go right ahead. Keep it in. Note the time. 1 hour and 37 minutes in. Uh, I do like that, you know, he quickly transitioned, even though, you know, I made fun of her for immediately going to the danger room, you know, when there's nobody around. Um, she's not in there very long, and, you know, the perimeter alarm goes off. I like that pose in, in the second panel on that page where she's coming down. Yeah. And it's all sudden like she's, okay, I'm alert. Yeah. And yeah, she immediately switches gears from having fun to, okay, something's wrong. And she goes to investigate and finds that, you know, the window is broken out in Storm's greenhouse and she steps on some kind of uh, goo poop, sludge poop, yeah. Yeah, you on can the practically feel the cold air blowing in right. that was a really good um, design there the the blue background and the cold air with that wisp of her breath yeah, um, yeah, yeah. you do feel cold in that and as no sooner does she step in the green goo uh, she's attacked and, you know, I, I do like her facial expression here yep. where she's screaming out no and it's, you know, uh, got its claws up at her about to uh, strike at her, you know, really does, you know, show terror, which, I mean, we were joking about it, you know, coming from the alien movies and, you know, the coloring on the cover is different than what's in the book, but this thing would be terrifying yeah. if you saw it in person, <laughs> especially, you know, we're, we're led to believe she walks into the room, right? There's no lights on and, you know, only the, the light from the night sky. And suddenly this massive creature is going to take a swipe at her. Well, it's all like uh, legs and claws. It, it's, it looks like a corpse kind of chasing after mm-hmm. it. It's, and it's got these abnormally long and, and kind of the... the the hinged back legs uh, that you see on aliens. Yeah, I agree. It's yeah. pretty. Uh, uh, it's pretty frightening. Mm-hmm. 
And the fact yeah, that it I'd just be, tears I, through. I would have peed my pants if I'd seen this coming at me. <laughs> yeah. It's funny because the top of the of page 14 is where it actually, you know, seeing it right there, it looks like a lot more like the rest of the Nagari that we saw in earlier pages than anywhere else in that in that particular pose, that perspective of it. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah, it's yeah, super creepy looking. And I really love that that middle panel where you see the the house and the walls and her running through the mansion and it just tearing through the walls right behind her. Well, it gives you a good sense of scale and I think to uh, I don't know who made the point that it's hard to tell its scale. I think because it is so thin and wiry that it's crouching so much it's hard to you don't ever see it kind of just standing up to see what its full height is. It's hard to right. Do any of you recall how old the X Mansion is? It's a couple hundred years old, I think. See, yeah, okay. The, the, the reason why I bring this up is that, that my family had an old house uh, in, in Missouri, in Rolla, Missouri, that um, it was built near turn of the century, uh, 1900. And it had actual hallways between the hallways and room for the electrical. You could actually walk between everything for the electrical. It, it wasn't like, like, knows like that's where all the killers hide. What? Yeah. The, that's where well, all the killers hide. Yeah, but it wasn't crawl space. It was walking space, you know. But as kids, we we ran through this house and we knew every secret door and every, you know, uh, expressway to another room. It was uh, a lot of fun playing hide-and-seek in that house. But, yeah, uh, the Nagari really doesn't, doesn't care. Yeah, the Nagari definitely the doesn't. Just like, what works, what work. Yeah. yeah well, she, she, and did you say that at this time, because I'm really bad with remembering how old characters are supposed to be, that she's supposed to be 13? I think mm-hmm. she says she's 13 somewhere in the story, doesn't she? Oh, that's right. Yeah, yeah. She's, she's 13, 14 at the oldest. Which... Yeah, so she's she's home alone. There's no help. This thing is chasing after her. She thinks she's going to be safe by, you know, going through the walls. And this thing is just steamrolling, you know, straight through the walls, just busting everything down and, and then just continues to be right on her heels. And then they have to, they have to, on a page I'm on, because it would read my digital, when she's trying to make the phone call and it breaks in and swipes through her, she realizes it can touch her when she's in her, uh, her phase state. So that adds... Yeah another level of uh, of danger because otherwise she could just stay phased and i always right. thought why don't you just air walk up and you can't fly i don't know how high it can jump just air walk straight through the ceiling and go up you know it just occurred to me you know based on what you guys were saying just thinking about this story of course is a christmas story and her being left there in a the house by herself do you think john hughes read this before he wrote home alone <laughs> yeah oh yeah absolutely <laughs> okay i'm gonna shut up now <laughs> so hey things things how uh we've gone through so much of this so far and considering that we just discussed the silent story and the other silent stories and do you think this would have been if, as effective without the thought bubble this yeah it's an excellent question especially i'll go first since i ripped on the previous story i you know trying to project that they're gone I would say yes. There's there's enough emotion conveyed in her facial expressions and the way her body is moving. Um, you, you know, like I'm looking at the page where she she believes she's lost it and she's going for the phone. You can tell she's just barely creaking the door open so it's just enough so she can reach in and grab it. I don't need any dialogue to tell me that that's what she's trying to do. She's trying to be very quiet. 
and get it. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, I agree. I think yeah. you could do it all. The only thing you would lose is possibly some of her feelings of not quite being part of the team and, you know, not being able to get a hold of her parents and kind of feeling, you know, why she's going to the danger room that kind of blew off steam because she can't get a hold of anybody. Right. But other than that, yeah, I mean, the you could certainly have the, the last half of this or, or a third of it could be without dialogue, just say sound effects. Yeah, I'm thinking, I'm thinking just the, the, the once the demon shows up, that it goes without any dialogue yeah, or easily, the, all of the other it. stuff important but i think this wow <laughs> yeah claremont does go over the top here with i mean you you whenever you're in a bad situation you are going to be talking to yourself trying to figure out what you're going to do but man she like writes a novel <laughs> as she's getting chased i've said this? it before I've said this before, and I'll say it again here. When I read his thought balloons, I don't think that she's literally thinking that word for word. It's the essence of what she's, you know, thinking distilled down into something that anybody can read. Yeah. Because it's just, you know, if you were to sit there and say all that out loud as (laughs) as you're going through all this, you wouldn't, you know, you you, you could have run down the street and back 17 times. Yeah, because if this was me, I'd be saying, oh, my God, 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 oh, my God. (laughs) That's what I'm going to be thinking. I do love on on page 18, this is where she's, you know, going through the hallway and getting into the danger room where she's running up on the air to get into the um into the the control room of the danger room and i i it's like every time i see that i always think of um swimming with flippers oh yeah okay you know the feeling that you get on your foot as the as though the flippers grab the water and help to propel you that's what i always think of when when i see that and this was a neat use of her powers that 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 they introduced really rather early with her character uh, which kind of set her aside from the vision being uh, uh, having similar phasing powers. I mean, we didn't see the vision actually walking on air. He floated and appeared to fly. She's nobody actually, ever could explain how the vision could propel himself at high speeds. Yeah, and he was <laughs> right. phasing. I just, I've never seen anybody provide a good explanation yeah. of that. So this was kind of a neat visual showing the the walking part of it, or that's how she figures out that's how it's going to work, and kind of like Green Lantern envisioned it, and that's how it happens. She's like, oh, I'll just walk on air, and she's just I'm walking. That's and that's how it manifests itself when she uh, exerts her power. Well, mm-hmm. there's some dialogue here that she's still kind of struggling. She's having to concentrate to phase through certain things, uh, so it's not just coming absolutely natural to her. She's still mm-hmm. having to think about what she's doing, uh, and she's under stress. You know, she's being chased by this thing. So right. uh, I do like this the little the I don't know what my pages are, but the where she's peeking over the counter right before it breaks into the yeah, control that's, room. Yeah, that's yeah. a nice. Uh, <laughs> That's a nice scene. And then uh, the next page is really gorgeous, where they get that black silhouette with its eyes red. Right. And then the and her silhouette as well. It's it's really nice use of absence of color. Mm-hmm. And then uh, whatever those are, the, the rods, the cosmic control rods, um, <laughs> <laughs> are uh, are smashed into him. And then he just he gets some more burn tech at the bottom where he's ripping up the floor. Now we're finally getting some of that detailed burn tech. I mean. Um, the control panel on the previous page was a little bit lacking, I think. Here we get some really nice details. Oh, yeah, on the floor. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. It's, it's really gorgeous. And, you know, again, this this is that 
you know, uh, changing size I was talking about, you know, when she's in the silhouette and it's looming over her right before it hit, gets hit by the control rods. Um, you know, it looks massive. And then when it's pulling up the floor, too, the same way. And, it looks pretty big. And maybe Tim's right. You know, it's it's standing up mostly. Not totally, but it's standing up. It's huge. <laughs> Great facial expression on the next page, too, where now... You know, yeah. she's sweating, right? You know, she, that to me is a very concerned, you know, great rendition of a concerned look. Like, she thought the danger room was going to work, right? I mean, it's designed, right, to teach the X-Men and to put them, you know, through heck. And this thing is not stopping. It's still coming. Yeah. And there's so much expression in her eyes. I don't know what Burns done, mm-hmm. but it's her eyes that are telling that whole panel. That exactly, that right. She's worried about it. And then knowing that, yeah, yeah that the danger room's going haywire and that could hurt this thing, but then it can also kill her. Yeah. And she runs into the force field. <clears throat> yeah, especially once she, once she runs into that force field and she realizes that now it's compensated for her and now she's trapped in there with it. Yeah. <laughs> she can't get out. You know, if I was the editor of a hot move, I would abuse that second panel. Uh, of, you know, her sitting her diving with the laser going through her and the demon behind her getting zapped. That that would have been a perfect uh, panel to use in the hot mood description. If you ever read those and saw yeah. the panels they put in people using examples. Because they, they really went overboard to find any burn work of any of the characters in there. And they didn't use him on her. Oh, really? Okay. Not that I recall. At least not this one. Yeah, I remember the, the initial entry was not one of my favorites of her. Wasn't that, they, wasn't that they, Carrie Gamble? I thought I it was Art so. Adams. Did Art draw her in her shadow no, cat? It was it I don't think it was. Maybe it was. But I don't think it was. But uh, that is a great panel. And it's too bad it's not bigger on this page. That would have been a really super like full-size page or at least a half a page. That would have been Yeah. Nice splash. Yeah. Um, Shows the chaos and all, <laughs> all of the different things that are all going off simultaneously, trying to trying to stop this thing. And like you said, you know, she thinks she's going to get out, and she tells you know the reader, uh, no, it's a random energy pattern that she'll be able to get through it, but she's got to concentrate. And of course, she can't because she's got you know this giant you know uh, demon coming after her. What was she in Ohatmu too? Was she Kitty Pride? Just. Because she's not under Ariel or Sprite. I thought she was Shadowcat. Shadowcat, that's right. Sub B S. Yeah, there she is in the hands of the Sentinel. And yeah, that's Art Adams. Oh, okay. The, the main image of her there. Um, I was thinking of the original Hot Move where they introduced her. That's the one I didn't really care about. Yeah, I'll have to look at that one to see who did that. I've got that as well. But. Uh, I was looking to see if uh, they had done shown any other imagery of her. Now, the only thing they have is the Paul Smith thing of her carrying a sandbag through a what looks like a concrete barrier in the danger room. That was from the whole Professor Xavier's a jerk issue. Oh, okay, okay. So like every other issue. <laughs> <laughs> That's right. It was uh, Paul Smith. Yeah, and the, and and it was her green outfit. Yeah. Yeah, and then the next page, there she is, still making some uh, leeway, or hoping. Uh, I I like how it's showing her tiring. Mm -hmm. Bottom page, I'm getting tired, he's getting angry. Uh, So, and possibly this is what, maybe five minutes? (laughs) Ten at the most? Uh, A lot of pages for that. Yeah, and she she, uh, makes the comment here about, you know, that that's, that's her last mistake. You know, another mistake, and she's dead. Mm-hmm. Pretty, pretty heavy stuff for a you know a thirteen year old, uh, but she's right. You know, like 
she can't underestimate this thing because clearly, you know, it just wrecked the danger room. Nothing in the danger room could stop it. And uh, we see her, you know, heading in, uh, to the hangar uh, for her kind of last stand here against this thing. Did the demon just break a mirror? It's... No, I think that's a door, a metal door, maybe. Oh, okay, yeah, yeah. yeah. Well, I, now I... the the floor there, though, where she's phasing through it, is that a zipatone type texture? I don't think so. It looks like a scribble, like something he scribbled. I always love when he does that, but I just he would do that mm-hmm. sometimes when he's doing some like a sweater. He would do that yeah. kind of looks like yeah. almost like like a wire or something. I also like the fact that when she's heading to the hangar, she thinks that. Even if it kills her, she, you know, she's got to. There's gonna be nobody left to warn the X Men, and they'll just walk right. in and get slaughtered. So, the, not only thinking of herself. Yeah, she's thinking of her teammates. So she's already, you know, starting to gel with the team. And I'll say, I never realized that the underground hangar was so far away. Uh, and maybe I'm thinking of the movies where it comes up out of the uh, basketball sw- court pool or basketball court. Yeah, uh, and this thing just whips this rail uh, out of the ground. Yeah, and uh, somehow figured it out pretty well but she kept going that control panel in there that is i mean i know plane control panels are intense but that's really <laughs> that's very intense that's, now you uh, know why she is practicing so hard in the beginning yeah no this kidding. thing has 900 buttons and it's unusual for burn to do buttons a lot of times he just does grids and does uh squares mm. which is easier for him i guess but yeah in the next page yeah. it's a nice build-up of tension with her trying to remember how to Set it, and you see the thing coming closer, and you that close up of her eye, and and uh, and then the bottom panel is great, where it's blasting it. You can almost see like the water coming off of it, like you did in Alien. Yeah, or whatever that was. Get off her, you! (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, it's it's a really good uh, visual there as she leads up to it. And you're right, the tension is kind of like ah, and then and then how it's also like okay, she calms herself down just to to get it just right. And then she's going to like, I'm going to nail you, sucker. <laughs> I need to go back and look at my artifact edition and see how many of these pages wound up in there. Ooh, Ooh that would yeah. be cool to see those. And she turns the jets on and she just cooks this thing. And it says, you know, they create a blast waves that shake the complex like a small earthquake. And we see <laughs> the plane and you know, uh, blasted smithereens because of course you know she wasn't concerned with actually trying to pilot the plane (laughs) yeah (laughs) hey guys i I know this is going to sound really weird but um page 27 when she's you know basically phasing up out of the top of the blackbird yeah do you do you see neo's face and the bottom right portion of that panel looks like keanu reeves face with the sunglasses on it and kind of obscured part of it there no i don't see that at all do you guys know what i'm talking about there i mean just I mean, again, it also, it could look very demonic or whatever, just by the way you're looking at it. But it's like, at first glance, I was like, man, it looks like Keanu Reeves from from The Matrix. I'm not seeing that. Sorry. I'm not seeing it either. Yeah, sorry. I don't know. I'm going to have to circle that and just, you know. I don't know how tired. How many drinks have you had tonight? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> or how tired are you? Yeah. I, I made a lasagna. I uh, got my wife a chair that I had to carry. Oh, my God, it was heavy. Yeah. And, uh you know, I mean, I've drank a couple bottles of water here while we've been talking, but no, no, no alcohol or any other mind-altering substances. Okay. Um, yeah. so my wife has been giving me these really weird um, um, candles uh, uh, that she's put in my room. They smell <laughs> like maraschino cherries. So, uh, you know, go with what you will. Okay, as long as she's not feeding you powdered donuts, you're good, man. No, it's, it smells more like burnt almond. Okay, all right. So anyway, so Kitty's thinking she's got this done. 
um, smart, staying off the ground, walking on air. Yeah. Uh, must be a lot easier with all that heat to walk on. I'm, uh, <laughs> I'm pretty sure. Uh, and then there's the 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 arm reaching out for. Her. Yeah, you guys that, think this that little gave me chills when I was a kid. <laughs> Imagine what it did to Kitty. <laughs> she must have like wrapped her pants. <laughs> I'm sure. That, I'm sure that's uh, that uniform's in a in a trash bin somewhere. <laughs> Look at how scared she is. She's got Steven Tyler mouth. <laughs> <laughs> well, probably, what would happen is she would forget what she's doing. She would phase down to the floor and burn herself to death. Um, no big deal. Do you think? Do you guys think this little last minute kind of jump scare works? I so no in that I what you know rereading this again. It's been a long time. You know I couldn't remember if we saw it again. And you know we're jumping ahead to the the very end of the book. You know the last page shows you know like the chart yeah. outline yeah. of the hand. <laughs> I don't know. I, you well, could have taken it out and it wouldn't have changed anything. Yeah. I'll I tell you, you know, reading Elswin has definitely changed the way I read the older books, though. And it's because one of the things he's been talking about in, in the other forums about it is how he likes to make almost every page end in some kind of cliffhanger so that you're just you can't wait to turn the page to get to the next one. And, of course, mm-hmm. you get to the next one and it's usually a change of subject, change of venue, change yeah. of storyline or whatever. And that's exactly what happens here because you see that and you're like, oh, crap. And you turn the page and wait, it's the professor and them coming up. What happened? And, Does uh, anyone have the actual comic book? Is this like a, a actual page turner or is it because I'm reading it in the trade and they're side by side. Uh, uh, this panel ends on the left side and then the right side has the uh, the mansion. So that whole element of surprise or what's happening on the next page is gone because i can already see uh does anyone have the original um well i'm i'm reading a cbr but it's got all the ads and everything in it so i'm trying to figure out how this is you know uh it's like that and that's that and that's that okay and you can see the left and the right pages that's good so it would have to be on the right page in order for it to have that what's happened did she get caught or not before you turn the page but even then, um, I think the it, next page. Go ahead, Brian. No, no, but it, I think, um, golly, it, it's it's hard to tell really um, the way that they scan this because it looks like there were some ads that were on other pages. It, 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 if, if I remember right, though, uh, look at looking at this. This was a, a left page, um, and, and and page twenty-eight was a right page. Okay. So yeah. really, really hard to. It would it would have to be otherwise it wouldn't work. Yeah, and I think and they could, would have been would have been smarter than that. And I think they should have the next page where you see Colossus going to the house. Don't have Kitty there. Build that up a little slower. Let that let him come in, hear something. Maybe not the television, just hear something. So mm-hmm. you draw that suspense out. Then you flip the page. Then you see her in front of the TV with you know obviously I guess she's taking a shower. Yeah, that's why I thought that maybe the the page with the claw was maybe a right page and you're like what and then you have to wait to turn the page over to find out to see this next full page and yeah it should have it would have been nice to have had that page also lead that mystery a little bit Mm -hmm. Uh, i love i love the lettering on yawn (laughs) where where she's in the chair and and it's like he woke her up Hmm? oh hi peter and then (laughs) she jumps him but uh that that the the lettering style that was used for that yawn was just like like a cat. <laughs> mm, right. I love that she has a frame of, of mind too to 
well, I guess the demon's dead. Let me go take a shower and clean yeah. up. And, <laughs> yeah, I'm fine. You know, not traumatized in the slightest, right? Not in the slightest. No PTSD for her. Nope, none. And, yeah. uh, and then, yeah, of course, see. When, they, when, when, when she's hugging Peter and the parents come in, Peter's thinking, oh, my God, her parents are here. I'm not touch her. I right. didn't touch her. <laughs> 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 yeah, he's, he's, what, about 18 at this point. So Yeah, yeah. so, yeah, five years ago. Or... Uh-huh. Yeah, yeah. His, his hands are very far at his side. That's right. Yeah, that's intentional. <laughs> and then we get the, the happy get family the back. Yeah. I do not like Kitty's face in these panels in the middle, or even yeah, even this whole page. They're a little cartoony. I, yeah, I, I'm wondering if Terry Austin inked this page. Because if you look at the faces of, of Carmen, Pride, and the wife, and everything, it looks like Dave Cockrum came in and helped. And then Storm's eyes, very cat-like, more yeah. cat-like than normal. Yeah, yeah. And that's more of a, I think that's more of a Cockrum uh, signature on Storm. Cause, uh, early on, she was kind of more like that. So that is interesting. Yeah, well, if you look at the Pride's eyebrows, just the, the way their eyes are portrayed on their face, it, it looks a lot more like something Cockrum would have done. Mm-hmm. And and the professor's features are thicker. Yeah, I think I think Cockrum did come in and, and ink part of this. And of course, they they did that with Cockrum on Burn, where in in some stories Cockrum would come in and redo the faces. But, yeah, it's uh, just it's just kind of jarring, you know. The whole whole book, you know, been pretty on point in the facial expressions, and then you get to the last page, and it's like, oi. Yeah. Well, well, to be up. honest, I'd never noticed it before until now. <laughs> Learn something new. <laughs> And that top, that top panel, the silhouette of uh, Storm, she seems to be pretty well endowed right there, her silhouette. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I never noticed that before either. Anyway. Yeah. Yeah, Kitty, Kitty looks like a tiny adult. You know what I mean? Like, it just looks wrong. Well, it's a nice little moment between Storm and Kitty. I think uh, kind of helps her build that camaraderie or that oh yeah i kind of did this and that and meanwhile storm's like what the heck man <laughs> some pretty <laughs> crazy stuff happening here and then storm says she should be proud of her and she goes gee <laughs> i wonder what the professor's gonna say he's I, gonna I, be I, mad I, how I, much I demerits when i read g you know in later years all i could hear was john bender from breakfast club going gee <laughs> <laughs> yeah it's kind of cheese Oh. Yeah. What do you guys think overall? I like it. Oh yeah, this, um, this is the Abbey Road. This, I mean, this is the Abbey Road of, of the the Burn Claremont, you know, work. Yeah. Uh, when I was when I first got this, I mean, it was cool to have a new character show up in the X Men. We'd had all of the others, and I, I maybe because it, it Kitty did what she was supposed to do, which is kind of appeal to um, a younger readership which was me at the time although i was a couple years older than she was but um i still thought it was neat to have a new a new character a new younger x-man uh that which was really cool and this was a nice solo story i mean it showed some really cool stuff that she was able to do it kind of showed her off her powers but also her weaknesses and what she needed to do and uh, it just set her on a track to become a vital member of the team to me I thought also it was a great way to display all the aspects of the X-Mansion and get yeah. destroy it so they could rebuild it and redesign it. 
Yeah, exactly. How many times do they rebuild the mansion? A lot well, of times. Within, within the next hundred issues, the house, <laughs> the mansion gets completely destroyed, not by the brood, but by uh, what were those shadow things that um, um, Stormbird was, was bringing in with her? Lilandra's sister. Oh, yeah. I don't remember. And they, and they had destroyed the they had destroyed the X Mansion completely. Yeah. And yet, and yet Kitty's the one that gets flack over you know destruction of the X Mansion. But well, yeah, so that was a fun part because um, the joke kind of went for a few issues too, and mm-hmm. to the point where she kind of felt bad. And then, but um, I think was it Kurt that teased her about it, or somebody teased her about it, and Logan. Oh, Logan. So yeah, it was a. Uh, it was fun, kind of cool how it just didn't become a one and done and we never referenced again. There was a minor reference here and there, which was is part of the the uh, the great part about Claremont storytelling is that little things get referenced back and forth. Right. It's not like next issue suddenly the everything's repaired and we're reset to to norm. Well, mm-hmm. I, I actually think that they use you know the the ridiculing of her and Kurt trying to reach out to her as part of what helped. Her to accept him without being scared of him every time she saw him. I think you're right, yeah. Yeah, so. But, uh, and of course, this is a big transition time because we're getting away from Byrne and other artists were coming in. And I mean, it, it was just what Brent Anderson for the next one and then um, um, Cockrum for the, all the ones after. Yeah. Yeah. And I have to look now just to make sure I'm not speaking out of my uh, backside on the Brent Anderson. This is 144, right? Yeah, this was the. Uh... If I if I give it the test right of you know is it still enjoyable does it still hold up I think the answer to both of those is yes mm-hmm. um, and then you know if if uh, you're listening to this and you're you know a fan of Kitty Pride and you haven't read this issue this is a really good you know solo Kitty Pride story it is yeah it's a good introduction to her. I don't think there's a ton of those. Yeah. So if you haven't read it, you should. <laughs> and I was right. It was Brennan Anderson with Joe Rubenstein doing the inks, and they're very un-Joe Rubenstein inks. I mean, I can see some of his telltale marks in different places, but not as much as I do in his later work. And even in the work that he did on Captain America, which I think was before all this, hmm. when when he worked with Byrne on Captain America. But then again, uh, we're not talking about that. We're going to talk no. about Byrne's work. Yep. <laughs> That does bring up the the constant gripe, right? Uh, you know, of comics. You know, it's like, okay, the X Men are off enjoying their, you know, Christmas vacation. She can't ring up the Avengers Mansion, right? <laughs> they couldn't they couldn't call somebody over from the Avengers to kind of keep an eye on Kitty. I think that was that panic moment. You know, <laughs> it's going on. She's not thinking about the Avengers because typically, when you know something happens that scares her at the house, she calls Mark, the neighbor's you know friend that happens to be a cop. <laughs> Or, or something along those lines. She doesn't think, okay, let's call the Avengers, then the Fantastic Four, then uh, we can try Spider-Man or, or, or whatever. You know, she's not thinking that way. Yeah. Well, rarely do guys, and that's just comics, do they ever actively communicate with one another? One another? And, and also, I don't think that the, the, the professor was expecting to be away for a long time. He was going to go pick up her parents as a surprise. And the they were delayed in returning back that night until after midnight because of the police of barricades and because of the murders so i think right. that that professor storm and colossus were like oh hey we're gonna go out and pick something up or whatever you know maybe some you know some chicken or whatever we'll, uh, we'll be back in, a, in an hour or so uh so i don't think they thought it was they were going to be gone that long and you know leaving her there alone with all of the 
the security on. Yeah, you wouldn't not, think there'd be a problem. You wouldn't think okay. there'd be a problem. So now, it's not like they were let's... leaving for the weekend like Angel did. They were just going to be gone for an hour or so to pick up her parents. Well, let's just talk about one point in the writing. Okay. When when the demon first shows up and attacks Kitty, how come the professor didn't get some kind of psychic shriek? Yeah, because he's supposed to have a rapport with all the X-Men. That's right. My friend. And I always forget being, about that. Being the solo single brand new mutant student, wouldn't he have, you know, definitely have, you know, stronger tabs on her? He was out of range. I'm going to I'm going to no prize this. The demon generated some type of dampening. So, <laughs> OK, see, I buy that. I, I will buy of course that. it did. Of course it did. Because why wouldn't it? Or this so, is when Magneto was was making his subtle alterations to the uh, magnetic lines that prevented Xavier's long, uh, long range tel- uh, telepathy. Long range tele- yeah. telepathy. Yeah. There you go. That, that, that started. I mean, they talked about it in 150, but it was already happening. So, yeah, it's a possibility that that was happening, too. So that brings up the question, you know, you talked about that, the, um, you know, they didn't think they're going to be gone very long. You know, I, I sometimes get, you know, an indication of time when you're reading a comic like this. And I think all of this happened very fast. Yeah. Like, you know, with like 10 minutes fast, if that, that all of that destruction and chasing and, you know, uh, her torching uh, the demon, you know, with the blackbird, I think that all happened really quick. You know, like you don't get the sense that this was something that was, you know, going on for a long time. Like she's just running from room to room to room to room. Right. And then you have the danger room thing. Right. And then it goes to the, the airplane hangar. I think this all happens quick, you know, and I'm making the finger snapping motion. I can see that. I can, I can see it, but I can also see if this was an episode or a film that, uh, by the time it ended, day, daylight would be coming. It would be dawn. And you would think, well, wait a minute. It seemed like, like you like you said, Dave, just a short amount of time went by. But then for the story, you know, the sun's coming up and it's been, you know, eight hours. Of course, yeah. we don't know how long it was between when she defeated the alien and she took a shower and then they came home. She could have all, had all that happen in 15 minutes, three, eight, four hours later after she got cleaned up and came home. Well, it <laughs> yeah. says they, they got home at midnight. Yeah, and, she, and she's come to terms with being attacked by the demon. She's gone through the five stages already. Right. <laughs> and, and is that a sleeve of her uh, uniform in the fireplace there? Because um, she's like, yeah, no, I'm going to burn this thing, not clean it. <laughs> yeah. No, it was a, I think it took place relatively quickly, and then she had time to just kind of relax or try to recompose herself, clean up, and then that's when um, – X-Men got home finally around midnight. So Is that yawn fake? Is that what that unusual font is supposed to be representing? Mm. I think it's genuine. The way she hugs Peter, I think that's genuine. Yeah. Yeah, yeah it's a good story. I, I agree with Dave. I think it's uh, it holds up. It's a good story. It's a keeper. Uh, it's not necessarily Christmassy like the last story. It's not trying to tell that kind of a story. It just it takes place on Christmas Eve and... Um, it just shows that uh, the initiation and plea, it's, it's, it's a fun story. I like it. Yeah, it's kind of well, a trial by fire, so to speak. I'll yeah. tell you, when, when Tim and I were trying to come up with what we wanted to do for the Christmas episode here, uh, the, all I could think of was Silent Night. I really couldn't think of any other story aside from the She-Hulk we did last year that had any Christmas implications. This one completely slipped my mind simply because while it is framed around Christmas, I don't think we think of it as a Christmas story. It's no. not about Christmas, yeah. Yeah, I mean the, the most Christmas stuff in it is her mentioning Hanukkah a couple times. The the, the... yeah, that's true. Yeah, I mean you could take that out. And it could be just a winter story, or it could be mm-hmm. a, whatever story. Uh, 
but well, yeah, we've gone on hold pretty good. Yeah, we've gone over our, our little uh, imposed timeline here, guys. I don't know if you want to just uh, close it up real quick or if, if you had anything you wanted to wrap up with. Nope, I'm good. I think we can wrap up. I'm, I do need to kind of get off here pretty quick. Um, yeah. Okay. I got some more work I got. Well, I had a lot of fun. I really appreciate you guys coming and joining with us on this. I know we talked about doing it separately, but I, I'm glad we got to do it together. It's kind of a, a nice Christmas gift to us as well yeah. as you. Yeah, it was a lot of fun. It's always yeah. fun when you guys come on. I mean, you, I think we we do <laughs> nothing wrong with what Brian and I do, but I think when you guys are on, we do a better show. I think we all feed yeah. off each other very well. <laughs> it is a lot of fun. Yeah, you it's, know, it's, it's always a good time going back and looking at at older books and uh, you know seeing if they're still good. Okay, and, now you know, still enjoyable. I want to talk a little bit about next year. Oh, and now we've already discussed some Trying to a drop. couple of couple of things uh, that, that we wanted to cover uh but one thing that um that uh, i had a conversation just a couple days ago with bob fisher from the superman radio podcast and he and i had talked about him coming on and talking about the superboy appearances that john byrne covered and so we'd be talking about that two-part series that led into um uh, the you know the uh krypton villains the the, the phantom zone villains mm-hmm um, and it brought up a there was the we, we we were having a discussion about the Crisis on Infinite Earths uh, series going on right now on on the CW. And have any of you been watching that? I have. I I don't I can't watch until after it's already broadcast. I don't want to spoil anything, but had you been reading about the Tom Welling appearance? Yeah, I saw it. Yeah, I've seen lots of the. I've tried to avoid the spoilers, but mm-hmm. I was uh, <clears throat> you know happy to see Brandon Ruth you know back. And uh, Tom Welling and a whole bunch of people. And oh, I'm drawing a blank on the guy who does the voice of Batman on all the animated movies. Kevin Conroy. Kevin Conroy, yeah. Conway, yeah, was playing the Kingdom Come Batman. I mean, that's, I will give, you know, tip my hat to DC. They they seem to, when they can, acknowledge those that, you know, have contributed. Yeah. Now, Tim, did you see the Tom Welling part? I have, because I, have, I can't watch, because uh, I don't. That's uh, that's not on Hulu anymore, so I can't watch any of the. Uh, I get Have you after. heard anything about it? Just though? stuff I've seen on Facebook. I mean, not really. I don't want to kind of. Brian, I saw it. He well, killed I, I the guy, I right? I, I don't want to spoil anything for Tim. Is the point is my, the point I'm trying to make? But at the same time, there's an aspect to it that I you know think bears discussion, and it it goes back to you know the when Superman killed Zod and is it Feora? And Gosh, Jax, was it Jaxer from uh, was it issue 22? I thought it was earlier than that. Isn't that the one with the green cover? Yeah. yeah. And you know, the, the, the question was, based on what we saw with Tom Welling, was did he really kill them? It, I, I, I can say without spoiling anything, it's not going to get that in depth. Yeah. The, the appearance of Tom Welling uh, and Smallville is like maybe 10 minutes max. It's just a, a section. It's a cameo. Yeah, but, so but I don't want to. I don't want to ruin it for. I don't want to ruin yeah. it for Tim because it, yeah. it's a really good scene. That, that's why I'm saying it's just. I I, I wouldn't even know. Um, yeah. So when I was joking, saying he killed a guy, he may have actually killed a guy. <laughs> <laughs> Kryptonian. He killed a Kryptonian. Brian, yeah. did you see it? Don't you know that's the new thing? They snap necks and they kill people. That's right. <laughs> yeah. 
Yeah, that's crazy. I'll, I'll say it's crazy. Um, but no, I, I've really enjoyed the the whole crisis thing. Yeah, it's uh, fun. Can't can't wait to talk to you guys about it. Uh, Mike Zumo recorded a show the other night with myself, Bob Fisher. Uh, my wife joined us for that uh, as well. And um, I want to see if somebody else is on there, but I just can't remember for the life of me. And what podcast uh, is that? Like, like? Uh, that was Man of Screen. Okay. Uh, and I've been on his his show there talking about uh, various Superman movies. Uh, Superman 4 was the last one that we did. And we'll probably cover Superman Returns when he gets around to that. Um, but uh, it's it's that's been that was a lot of fun uh, talking with those guys. And Bob Fisher is such a... He's an amazing Superman aficionado. He's he's you know all Silver Age and just got an encyclopedia wow. of knowledge in his head about that. And he's also got some great stories. He he actually when he went to see Superman the movie in the movie theater, sat in the same theater with Jimmy Carter, not wow. knowing that he was in there with the president. Finding that wow. out later. That's super. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. That's amazing. cool. Yeah, we found that out on the Superman movie minute that they're doing on the Fire and Water Network. And if you haven't listened to that, that's a that's a great show. They've just finished Superman two, and they're just talking about the Donner cut uh, on there. And so, like, if you're big fans of the Superman movies, go over to Fire Water Network and and listen to Superman movie minute, Superman two movie minute, and I think they're about to start Superman three. Wow, I still need to watch the Donner. I have it. My wife bought me the. Well, I had the DV set of the Superman yeah. piece, and then my wife bought me the Blu-ray set that came with, you know, that Donner cut and, you know, every, every single extra you could possibly want. It's um, it's interesting. I, I mix, mix well, well, it, it, it's interesting. It's worth a watch, but it's not something, you know, whenever I want to see Superman 2, I'm not going to pull out that copy to watch it. Mm. And it's because because they're doing the Donner cut. You know, if there was a scene that Donner had filmed himself, he had to use one of those. And so the very possibly one of the great Superman moments in all the movie, General, would you care to step outside? Was not used, but it was not done by Donner. So it wasn't used by Donner. Mm. And I mean, you know, just, you know, they did different, different takes on a lot of other scenes. It's still not a bad movie. And of course, because they used the ending of Superman two for Superman one, when they used the, that in the Donner ending, of course, it looks like a repeat. You know, reusing the same trick. I prefer the Donner cut personally because I, I have a lot of problems with some of the humor that Richard Lester brought in. Yeah, they cut all that out. I mean, it's def like I said, it's definitely worth a watch, but you might feel like the beats are so different that you're more comfortable with the old one when you're on a rewatch. Well, I, I've got my Christmas vacation here, and uh, it's on my it's on my to do list because I've I've had it. I think my wife got me the DVD set for last Christmas. And I still haven't watched it yet. Um, yeah, I've, I've heard, I've heard, you know, like I said, mixed mixed reviews. Some people like it, you know, like Tim and Brian. You're saying it's watch it, but it, it probably won't be your definitive version of the movie. Right. Uh, you know, I, I've heard there's like audio hiccups, and you know, obviously some things you know weren't well, cleaned up all that also, well, so they stand out. Yeah. Well, because they were filming Superman and Superman Two at the same time. Donner was doing that. The and Christopher Reeve from the beginning of filming to the end of filming was constantly working out. Um, they used some of the screen test material for some of the scenes that they had to intersperse in there. And Christopher Reeve is just a skinny dude in a pit, <laughs> a pit stained Superman outfit, you know, <laughs> uh, but, but you get to why they chose him and why they chose Margot Kidder uh, based on those and, and, and some of the other scenes they show in there that use them. 
But uh, there's one scene that, that um, they apparently filmed that came right out of Plot Magazine. And I, I know Tim knows what I'm talking about. But do you, do you, did you guys ever see the Plot Magazine thing where uh, Lois Lane falls out the window and Clark goes jumping out after her and he doesn't have time to change to Superman? And he catches her and Lois says, as, he, as, as you know, as he's holding her, she says, ha, Superman, I always suspected you were Clark Kent. That's why I only pretended to fall out the window. <laughs> and then next you see Clark at his desk and Morgan Edge peeking his head into his office. Go, Clark, have you seen Lois? And Clark goes, Lois, oh, she fell out the window. Yeah, I remember that one. <laughs> <laughs> Love that one. I do remember that. Yeah. Yeah, since, since we're talking, you know, just to, to wrap wrap it up have you guys seen that you know there's a big push on again for the Zack snyder cut of justice league i've heard that you know well i've heard that it you know first it was it doesn't really exist it was like a fanboy dream but supposedly it does something does exist yes so snyder tweeted out a picture of you know a ton of film canisters and he said it you know confirming the rumors so now there's this big push again to get the Zack snyder cut they didn't uh, film on film. They filmed it digitally. So there's no need for film canisters. Wow. That's right. It's got all the thumb but, drives in there. Yeah, yeah that's right. <laughs> but I mean, the thing is, is that I figured that they were always going to put it out. They're just trying to build up, you know, enough stuff, you know, enough chatter about it to eventually put it out when, you know, maybe not this year, probably next year sometime. Like, like, you know, the Donner cut, unfortunately, it came out after the death of Reeves and, and Kidder so that they didn't get to build up as much, you know, foster as much goodwill for it when they put it out. But still, a lot of people went and watched it. And for a while there on streaming media, that was the only thing you could see. So we'll, we'll see what happens with that. I'll watch it. I don't know that, you know, I, I don't expect great things from it or bad things from it. I expect it to be what it is. Yeah, it's, it's more of a curiosity to me since right. I... I don't, I don't hate the you know the DC movies of the last few years like some people do. I, I think there's missteps here and there in a lot of places and things that I, I think they shouldn't have done. But you know I'm I'm curious more so around what was the tone of the movie going to be? Was it going to be more of what we already had before? You know, kind of the dark, you know, grim, gritty. Because you know when you watch Justice League, there's there's scenes that just stick out like sore thumbs. You know, and then obviously the ending, right, is like, oh, you know, are we filming a different movie at this point? Because <laughs> um, yeah. things change so fast. So I'm just curious, you know. And there's been you know some stills released too that show you know like Aquaman, you know, impaling um, Stephen Wolf with his trident and having mm-hmm. him hoisted up in the air. Um, I hadn't seen that. Yeah. yeah. So it, you know it. We'll see if it comes out, you know, like you said, you know, the Donner cut, it took, what, 20 years mm-hmm. at least to come out. But I think this will probably come out within the next year or two. I think, you know, they're going to want to go in and finish up the effects and such for whatever they have to. Uh, maybe work better on getting rid of that mustache if they have to. <laughs> oh, um, that was so bad. You know, um, but, you know, the thing is, and, and what I want to know is, did Joss Whedon film all those scenes of Superman that were actually good Superman? You know, yeah. like that little video phone thing that they did at the very beginning. That was that was like something you would see Christopher Reeve do. Yeah, and it was cute. It, it, it was cute. It, it was the the special effects were. Yeah, but but it worked really well for mm-hmm. for the Superman that we wanted to see. Yeah, you know. Um, but and then the you smiley know, happy one at the end, just kicking everybody's asses. <laughs> <laughs> well, I've always been a fan of. Tr- <laughs> <laughs> yeah. But, you know, my thing is, is that I just don't think that there are any writers today that um, 
can, in their mind, write a good Superman story. They they have been told uh, in college or wherever that they learn to write that there is nobody that's all good. And that's that's pr- the problem that the writers have. To, they have to write bad in everybody. Yeah, there's and, too much and, cynicism in the world to believe right. that someone like Superman could exist. Right. Yeah, I agree. And it's sad. We're trying. We're trying to continue to foster that in our kids. You know, this belief of uh, you know a thing. You know, magic and things being good and everything else. You know, and one of the things that my daughter really likes, and now my son's getting into it, is Superman. And I, I think it's because of you know just the right the big blue Boy Scout. Um, you know, he's he's uh, to me he's that embodiment of good. So you know, it's we'll see. I, I I don't disagree with you. I think they just took a wrong you know went down the wrong path with you know we got to mature these up and people don't want you know a christopher reeve type superman again and they were wrong clearly um so we'll see you know maybe you're right maybe it will come out in a year and they'll have some super deluxe box set that they'll sell us all for fifty dollars well or when the next movie's coming out they'll sell that one yeah it'll have both versions on it oh yeah get your double dip but you know the bottom line is that you know with with these filmmakers Zack Snyder, uh, Michael Bay, we know now what we get from them, and the studios just got to. Bless you. Sorry, the studios just have to face facts when they have these directors that they they're going to get this out of them, and they need to focus on that. And I think that the studios that have Michael Bay have figured that out because Six Underground is playing on Netflix right now, and if you guys haven't watched this, it is balls out nuts. <laughs> And, and it's just it, it's it's and I, I used to describe it the other day on Facebook. I called it Verhovian violence because it made me think of, of Paul Verhoeven's violence in, in Total Recall and um, Starship Troopers, you know, just almost comedic, violent, bloody, bloody. That's violence. the one with Ryan Reynolds, right? Yes. Yes. That's the one, yeah. I think he came out on a little promo thing and said it like it was the most Michael Bay movie of <laughs> Michael Bay movies. <laughs> yeah. And, and I mean, it, it just gives you that. And the first 20 minutes are so watchable, yet at the same time, frightening, horrifically frightening. <laughs> it, it, it's worth a watch. There, there are moments that are, you're going to just go, oh, damn, no, <laughs> ow. But it's going to be fun. So, you know, again, you know, this is a, the case where the studio knew what they had and just let him be himself. Speaking of studios and directors, since we're recording this as our Christmas episode are we are we should go round table and say what do you think the uh, the rise of Skywalker is it going to be good is it going to be bad or is it just going to be meh because we got JJ coming back for this one I think that it's going to give a lot of imagery that everybody wants to see and it's going to give closure to every one of their stories that they've been working on I think that <laughs> As always, we're going to get people that love it and say it's the greatest thing ever. We're going to get people that hate it, say it's the worst thing ever, when it's going to be neither. It's mm-hmm. just going to be closure. I don't, to even the, th- to I don't know if it's even going to do that because it doesn't feel like it's closing anything. To me, it does not feel like the finale of three, certainly not nine films. It doesn't feel like the finale of the first two. Uh, it's 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 kind of decompressed storytelling. So it almost feels like they're just kind of getting started. And they're supposed to wrap things up. So I think the people that liked uh, Last Jedi will hate this one. And the people that hated Last Jedi will like this one. So it's going to flip back the other way. I I think this is going to be a lot like Return of the King where it's going to end seven times. That's that's (laughs) probably a very good observation there. It probably will. And and it's going to... 
either wrapped everything up with a little bow or it's going to leave answers or I, I, I don't know. I mean, I'm kind do of. You, do you think it would have been a better film if Carrie Fisher had not died when she did? I don't think so. I mean, I don't think that really. Well, she died after it was completed, so I don't. Think no, that's no, they they had not much. filmed. They had not filmed any of her stuff for that for this movie. Oh, I thought so. They had. Yeah, they filmed all her stuff. J.J. Abrams said that they had to use unused footage from uh, the Force Awakens. Yeah, and then her uh, daughter. I think her daughter stood in for her. That's you know, right. Some of the scenes. She died film at the end of the filming of the other of the Last Jedi. That's yeah. right. Yeah. I can't believe how long it's been since passed away already. Yeah. yeah. Uh, I think it probably would have been. I, I don't know. But um, had she been able to, to do the full story, would have, um, would I think, been better. But um, I think it's going to be, uh, it is what it is. So they're going to do their best to make it as fitting for her story as they can. Yep. Yep. Yeah, and, I, and like like one of you said, there's going to be people that absolutely hate it. I know one. He hates it no matter what. <laughs> because it deviates from this the the books that were written and uh, uh there's gonna be people that absolutely love it and then um like for me i'm just gonna go in expecting to enjoy it and uh looking at the big screen and wanting to recapture what i did with the, the original three that came out that i love so much and i'm hoping for that experience well you know i'll, I'll say this um when jj abrams came on for the force awakens he had to give the studios what they wanted. They wanted, you know, return to the New Hope kind of uh, storyline. They had to have certain beats and everything to be hit. And, you know, the the movie did what it did, which was just amazing, amazing. All right. And then Ryan Johnson came in with The Last Jedi and, well, things kind of went soft a little bit, just a little bit. But things went soft a little bit. So I, I think they're going to give him a bit more free reign, <coughs> excuse me, on this one than than they gave him on The Force Awakens. I can see that. I think Disney is smart enough to know that, you know, this is make or break, right? So if this movie blows, you know, then there goes all their box set sales and, you know, uh, goodwill for whatever the next slate of movies is going to be, which <laughs> we're going to be in a little bit of a hiatus here. I think it's it's like well, a two-year gap. Well, you know. I understand also that George Lucas has been talking a lot more about what he was going to do with this set of movies. And hopefully they'll do like with this what they did with the Star Killer stories and make comic books out of them. Yeah, he also thought of mini stories. <laughs> so put that in town as another George L- 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 you know Lucas amazing idea. I I think it's I think it will be really good. I think, you know, uh, I read a article with Abrams and he teamed up with to write it one of the writers of, uh, from Argo. So that gives me a lot of faith, you know, that there's some writing they chops all, they, there. They also wrote Batman v Superman. Yeah. <laughs> all the two of them together? The the writers of Argo, they're, they're Ben Affleck's writers. And when Ben Affleck got involved in the DCU, he brought his writers into it. So they were part of, of you know, Batman v Superman. They were part of Justice League. Uh, was it Chris Terrio, I think, was one of them? And I mean, but there were several. It's like a staff of writers that uh, that he had there, and so yeah, you know, they were they were part of that. So don't pop my bubble, okay? <laughs> well, I think Just it'll. Let me I have my balloon over here. I think it'll be a. It won't. I don't think they'll. They'll. It'll. 
have the praise heaped on it that uh, Last Jedi did. And I think a lot of that came from uh, Ryan Johnson and his pedigree that he brought, and that he was an independent filmmaker, and he didn't, you know, he wasn't uh, like a, a company man the way I would think you might say J.J. is. So he did things differently, and that's where everybody responded to, but not the hardcore fans. They were the ones that, like, well, they really rebelled against it. So I think J.J. is going to be aware of that, and he knows not to course correct too much because he wants to kind of balance out and get everybody in there. So Yeah, uh, it, it is Chris Terrio, J.J. Abrams, Colin Trevorrow, which I don't know if you guys that's not recognize. Good. He's the <laughs> Jurassic World guy. Yeah, that's not a good sign um, at all. And, yeah, Jurassic World, and that's pretty much what he's done. Hmm. Sounds like I should just Lois Lane myself out this window. <laughs> <laughs> hey, you never know. He may be just getting a credit. That, yeah, yeah, it's true. Maybe just yeah, a little, true. little bit of insight. I, I, I do believe, you know, this is just my guess. It'll be good. It's going to be action-packed. We've got Billy D back piloting. That's the only thing I'm really kind of excited about. Oh, yeah. He's a big dude now, too. Yeah. Um, looks like he slimmed down to, uh, to be in the movie, which is great. I love seeing the old characters back and that they've progressed right into wherever they're at yeah. you know in, in their you know fictional lives i think it'll be fun you know like yeah. you said tim i i i'm sure there's going to be people you know there's going to be that split you know that are going to say and, it's trash and the the the, the tragedy of it is that everybody feels it's not, everything's so black and white you feel like yeah. it's either it's the worst movie ever made or it's the best and honestly, you know, Dave, you go into it. If you had a great time, I go into it and I don't. There's no difference. You got what out of it, what you wanted to. It wasn't necessarily my thing, but it doesn't take away from you, you know. So if you have fun with it, I think that's great. I don't begrudge anybody who's, you know, has a great time with the, with the movies. And you know what else is fun? Else when. Oh, yeah. Yep. And that's, that's Bring another it back. thing we definitely want to cover uh, sometime next year. Um, I think you know that, that we'll we'll get together in the background and kind of go over you know what what we all want to cover. Um, so definitely want to get get with you guys also so we can you know work that out, work how how we're going to do this next year because we yeah. definitely want you to be a part of it. Oh, thanks. And, and I want to pop that Tupperware back open <laughs> so you keep us fresh. <laughs> and I want to uh, yeah. we were talking about bringing them in. Uh, if we do our we didn't do it this time. We were to do our top five. So yeah. we're doing top five burn creations. created characters. Yeah. So uh, I think that'd be a lot of fun if you guys come in on that too. But So that's okay. something to think about while you have your time. Yep. Alrighty. And speaking of time, I think we need to wrap this up because. Yeah. Okay. A lot of fun, I, fellas. <laughs> I got to add one last thing in. It was, it was something I was going to tell during the whole uh, uh, Silent Night story. And it was a story that my dad told me when I was a little kid. And of course, he tells me this story as though it happened to him and his friends. But, uh, I, I, you know, I just figured it's you know, just one of his stories. And that was they had, when he was a little boy in grade school in the 40s, a World War I pilot talking about, you know, the battles and everything that he was in. And so he's there in the classroom going, and um, this Fokker was flying over here to our left, and this other Fokker was over here on our right. <laughs> and the teacher interrupts, and she goes, you guys need to understand that a Fokker is a type of German airplane. And the pilot goes, yes, but then Fokkers was flying Messerschmitts. <laughs> uh, <laughs> so you might, you might have to beep that if you want to carry that for the episode. Yeah. Too. I think that's pretty harmless. <laughs> But that's a good joke to, to, to sign off on. So. All right. All right. Merry Christmas. Thanks. Happy Merry holidays. Christmas, happy holidays to you all. You too, guys. It's great. As always, Christmas. have great to have you guys on. Yeah, yeah thanks. Have fun. Adios. Adios. Merry Christmas. Feliz Navidad. <laughs> oh, how about that? 
Hello, it's Kirk Greenfield once again. You may be a little surprised to see me pop up here, but there's actually a story behind why we're doing this. When we were talking about doing holiday shows around Christmas time, I had suggested that maybe we should review X-Men 143, the Kitty Pride solo story that is very similar to Alien in some respects. But I was told that Third Degree Burn had already done a show about this episode, and therefore it shouldn't be done a second time. Well, the more we got to talking about it and decided to take a holiday break, the more it seemed more appropriate that maybe we could dust off that old episode and present that, share that one more time, since it has two really good John Byrne holiday-themed stories in it. So that's what we thought we'd do. And then somebody else suggested, well, Kirk, since you weren't here for that particular episode, the other interns were, uh, would you like to record a couple of minutes of comment and use that as an intro to the episode? Well, I got to think about that, and while I'm all for sharing, um, I'm not sure that it's quite fair, because I get the benefit of having already heard that episode and reacting to what they say, but the other interns and the other hosts don't have the opportunity to debate with me or or contradict me, so I'm not sure that I, I entirely agree with it, but I, I guess we're going to do it anyway. And I wasn't really thrilled about the idea of doing it as an intro, because uh, I'm going to be reacting to the entire show, some of which I don't think that you would have already heard. So I'm thinking that maybe it would be better if I just kind of flipped through the issue and made some post comments. So hopefully that's how this recording is going to be used. But that's a long way around saying that uh, I'm going to be commenting on X-Men 143. Uh, and there's a couple of reasons why it's especially of interest to me. I've got a digital copy in front of me. And boy, you know, every image, every part of this tale just rings very loudly for me. I got out of comics for about eight years during high school and college. And it wasn't until I graduated from college and was out living on my own that I happened to stumble across a spinner rack only about a block or two from where I was living. And I decided, oh, that's interesting. Let's see what they're up to. And, um, you know, there were a couple of issues that caught my eye, including the Daredevil story, which, uh, which introduced Elektra for the very first time. Uh, so there was a Miller tale. There were also a couple of X-Men stories that looked really interesting. And I apparently I had just missed the... Uh, Dark Phoenix Saga. So instead, what was on the rack was the Days of Future Past two-parter. And boy, was I impressed. I was pretty pleased, and as a result, I uh, continued to uh, look at a couple of issues and then decided to sign up for a subscription for four Marvel comics. And one of the first ones that arrived was this particular issue, 143. So I don't know if this was the um, the first subscription issue or if, in fact, it was the next issue, which was a rude surprise for me, but we'll talk about that someplace else. Well, okay, so we're looking at 143, and I've got to tell you, while some people feel that this is a thinly disguised version of Alien, I didn't feel that it perfectly mimicked the movie, but I saw the parallels and the similarities right off the bat, especially when we got to the end with the uh, the exhaust of the Blackbird uh, toasting the monster. I got that real quick. I mean, there was no question in my mind where this had been drawn from. I had seen 
alien uh, quite some years earlier, and it was vivid in my memory. Also, it was a time period when cable TV was just coming to the Detroit suburbs, and as I was working for a cable TV company, I was getting free HBO, free movie channels, free cable from my employer, and so I had seen quite a few things that were on repeat in the uh, 80s, as it turns out. So in 1980, I was living on my own, and I think maybe the Alien movie was out and in rotation on HBO. So I had seen it and seen it again and was pretty familiar with it. So maybe I was oversensitized to it. I don't know. But I enjoy the cover. I think it's really good. For the first time in my memory, we're seeing Kitty Pride on a spotlight or having a focus on her more so than the days of future past. This is Kitty on her own, a gawky teenager, but a spunky kid who's learned how to fight. And she's been trained by the X-Men to some degree, as we find out. The cover, okay, I can forgive the fact that the monster is green instead of charcoal, as it is inside. But that's okay, it kind of echoes the Christmas colors of red eyes and green alien. Um, and I like the lighting. It's pretty clear that it's in the background, it's in the shadows, and Kitty's uh, flashlight is giving a light flare facing forward. The other thing about this I should tell you is as I got into buying the X-Men again and starting to find comic shops in the area, of which there were one or two, I discovered a publication that was coming out just about this time that was called the X-Men Companion. And there were two volumes of what essentially was a, not a graphic novel, but it was a trade paperback size publication that looked at the, oh, about three-year history of the X-Men and the... Uh, the Byrne and Claremont issues, as well as looking at the um, Cockrum and uh, Claremont issues. And so it was filling in a lot of the blanks that I had missed when they started printing the new Uncanny X-Men. Uh, there were focus pieces on Wolverine, on Nightcrawler, on all the individual characters. There were individual panels that were reprinted, highlighting how Byrne had done some of his photocopy trickery, um, it was really kind of interesting because I could not quite fill in all the gaps, but I sure got a sense of what had gone by or what had happened in the prior three years. And although I started to buy back issues to try to fill that in and eventually did fill in all the back issues, it was interesting to see a, um, a separate publication um, connect the dots and point out things that might have gone past me. So I really enjoyed that, and that helped also feed the fuel and made me decide to start buying comics again, which, as I've already alluded to, um, I started with about this issue, the first two um, Days of Future Past, and then this issue, and then immediately 144, which I discovered Byrne had left. Uh, so I had just signed up a year's subscription, and here we go. Um, the reason why I'd signed up for this title was gone. Well, I'm going to try to take a look at some of my digital imagery, uh, the digital copy of this uh, issue, except the problem is uh, my computer has just partially crashed. So I'm trying to reboot that, and I may edit this out. Uh, we'll see how quickly this reboots and if I can see the entire episode or not. So as we continue now, I've got my digital copy booted up. And until it freezes again, I'm going to go page by page here. And immediately it crashed. You are in error. You do 
did not discover your mistake. You make two errors. You are flawed and imperfect. And you have not corrected by sterilization. You've made three errors. So we're going to try to reload one more time here. Computer? Computer? Ah. Hello, computer. Just use the keyboard. And I'm rebooting very quickly. I'm on the splash page and it shows Oro being uh, skewered, fighting with the various creatures that had uh, come out of an obelisk back in uh, Central Park quite a while ago. So I like this recap because it kind of refreshed my memory. I hadn't seen the original story, but that's okay. It gave me enough that I had a springboard to, to uh, plunge off from. She fights. She uh, is able to defeat them, but leaves one creature free and a hapless couple uh, out for a winter stroll is about to cut down a small tree and in fact they're killed and it's interesting because we never find out anything about this couple we never find out if there's any um, any justice for them or if anybody even knows that they're gone or what the story is so this is demon and on the splash page of the title we can see the demon crawling down from the stalactites and the slime um, from the top of the page and it's an interesting perspective as uh, Kitty and Professor X are drilling on the computer about the sequence for the blackboard the blackbird ignition procedure which I thought worked pretty well and, it, and I like the fact that she's going through the process that she has to remember at the end of the story to save herself um, great inking by uh, Terry Austin at this point, I could not separate that from the John Byrne artwork. They were fantastic. I had the opportunity to interview uh, Terry Austin once and learned that his specialty was John Byrne eyes, particularly on women. He laughed and told me that, that that's what he apparently people really respond to, is how he accentuates his uh, John Byrne's artwork for the eyes. Um, looking at Wolverine, he is hot-tempered. He is, again, out of sorts. He's somewhat out of character from what we come to know, but it's it's pretty clear that uh, the version that, or the amount of development that he's had so far is still in line with the scrappy um, hothead uh, early version of uh, the character. Um, we see Kitty giving a smooch to Petey, and he's blushing quite a bit. Uh, one of the first indications of their budding romance or relationship, uh, however you want to describe that. My mind cannot separate this from the astonishing X-Men scene where they finally recover uh, Colossus. And in fact, uh, I think it's safe to say that uh, they culminate their relationship in that, as I remember. So they all leave. Kitty's at home alone, which is great. She, he gets a phone call, or rather she gets a phone call from Scott, who's uh, meeting uh, Allie Forrester, Lee Forrester, who's going to become uh, more and more interesting and more significant for the next, oh, probably six issues, and then vanishes, and I don't think she's in the series anymore. So she's at least a supporting character. At first I thought she was going to be a romantic interest uh, to Scott, but I, I guess that didn't play out. But it's interesting to see here she's first introduced. There's a danger room sequence that 
looks really good. I love the old school costume that Kitty is wearing and the work that she continues to do. Um, not bad at all. It, it kind of it, it knits the idea of a school and a training center uh, together and maintains that. And uh, I don't think we really get that emphasis for probably another two years after this until the new mutants show up. And I agree, that was a good concept. That was a, um, a welcome addition to the X-Men pantheon. And I wish they had kind of stuck with that a little bit more rather than to mature people and make them go out on their own. When we get to Oro's... Uh, aviary her greenhouse i guess is the word up in the attic uh, everything's cold burnt frozen or dead uh, the windows are smashed and there's some green goop on the floor and the alien attacks uh, i'm going to call it the alien no matter what it's really supposed to be called uh, she ducks she dodges it chases her through the mansion ripping out walls pursuing her successfully through the mansion uh, and almost to the point where uh, she got to call for help and before it ambushes her. Really nice job of artwork. I can follow the story terrifically without even reading the word balloons or the thought balloons since she's alone. Most all of this are thought balloons. And then she gets into the danger room and it breaks in and they go tumbling into the danger room where it kind of tries to take out the alien uh, unsuccessfully but at least delays her well enough that she can try to get out of there but she's got a double-edged sword. One, beat the system and two, stay away from the alien, which doesn't care anything about the rules, but is willing to uh, just kind of uh, tear things up. Ultimately, she makes it to the hangar down in the bowels and uh, rides a rocket sled. I had forgotten about that, but she actually gets to the Blackbird, and she gets in and tries to go through the startup sequence and doesn't remember it all, but it builds tension. A really nice sequence here as it comes closer and closer until she finally fires it, and it's very reminiscent of the movie Alien. I really liked this. I liked the sequence, and sure enough, the creature is still uh, able to make a last gasp grab for her. And I wouldn't have minded it if that was the end of this issue, that we didn't know what was coming. But the fact that it goes on with a little coda that says, ah, well, they're all here, they've returned, and she's just curled up on in front of the fire, is kind of interesting. I, I like how this pays off, especially the fact that she says, Mom, Dad, oh, Dad, you grew a beard. Well, I don't remember ever having seen him prior to this, so I don't know how significant that is, but I kind of liked it. Uh, the whole sequence here uh, works pretty well for me. Oro says, I've just been up to my attic. Uh, what's going on? And as Kitty kind of drops one thing after another and says, well, I kind of wrecked this and wrecked that. Uh, Oro, I think, has increasing respect for her. Um, they've got a great relationship here, kind of a big sister, little sister relationship, and I like how that's played out. Um, ultimately, as we get to the last sequence of four panels down in the bowels, we see the ashes of the alien as it has burned. And then the next issue, the return of Cyclops, which sounds you know, really good. Uh, really interesting, and as I've already told you, I was really frustrated because John Byrne had walked, and there was no indication that that was going to happen after this. So I was really a little upset. Okay, so I've kind of summarized by looking at the pages some of my comments. I think the, uh, the other hosts are doing a really good job of their discussion of it, and since I've run about 15 minutes, I'm going to wrap this up. 
if you've stayed tuned for it and you've heard some of the background of why this is significant for me, I appreciate that. Uh, if you have thoughts about this issue, we really want to hear you on the email. Please write to us, gotta get burned at uh, gmail.com and give us the pluses and the minuses, what you like, what you don't like, what issues you want us to cover, and what issues you'd like to see us stay away from. Again, I'm still toying with the idea of doing a series on Namor the Submariner, at least the first 25 issues that John Byrne helmed. Um, and I may start that within a month or two. We'll have to see how much free time I've got. But I'd like some encouragement. If there's somebody out there that really likes it, I'd like to hear about it. That's it. I'm Kirk Greenfield. Happy Holidays. Oh, Tannenbaum, oh, Tannenbaum, du kannst mir sehr gefallen. The news had come out in the First World War that Bloody Red Baron was flying once more. The Allied Command ignored all of its men and called on Snoopy to do it again. Twas the night before Christmas, 40 below When Snoopy went up in search of his foe He spied the Red Baron and fiercely they fought With ice on his wings, Snoopy knew he was God Christmas bells, those Christmas bells Rang up from the land Asking peace of all the world and goodwill The Baron had Snoopy dead in his sights. He reached for that trigger to pull it up tight. Why, he didn't know. Well, he'll never know. Or was it the bells from the village below? Christmas bells, those Christmas bells. Snoopy fly to the Rhine and forced him to land behind the enemy lines. Snoopy was certain that this was the end when the Baron cried out, Merry Christmas, my friend! <laughs> oh, yeah. The Baron then offered a holiday toast, and Snoopy, our hero, saluted his host. And then with the roar, they were both on their way, each knowing they'd meet on some other day. Yes, they did. Sing us out again. Christmas bells, those Christmas bells.
kind. Thank you, folks. Thank you. That's Thank it. you. All right. Thanks for listening. You can find us and many other great shows at tutufreaks.com. That's T-W-O-T-R-U-E-F-R-E-A-K-S dot com. Third Degree Burn is spelled with the number three, R-D-D-E-G-R-E-E-B-Y-R-N-E, and is part of the Tutu Freaks network of shows. Follow us on Facebook and Twitter. Just look for Third Degree Burn, spelled with the number three, and Burn spelled B-Y-R-N-E. Compliments, complaints, and recipes can be sent to gotta get burned at gmail.com that's g-o-t-t-a g-e-t-b-y-r-n-e-d at gmail.com drop us a line and tell us how we're doing till next time this has been third degree burn some men aren't looking for anything logical like money they can't be bought bullied reasoned or negotiated with some men just want to watch the world burn